Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. podcast you can open with Duran Duran is going to be a good podcast. That was Planet Earth from their 1981 album, Duran Duran, available on Apple Music. What better way to get started? I think that's their very first hit, by the way. I, I, I know my Duran Duran. It's, I, I really enjoyed them back in the day. So I think that was their very first hit in the UK. I don't think it was a hit here in the States. Welcome to the Casey's Top 10 podcast here. <laughs> Yes, or actually, welcome to episode 53 of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from Kansas City Cinephile and Monster Movie Kid. And let's also welcome our watchers on our YouTube channel. Welcome to the video companion, if you are watching as well as listening. I apologize for the facial blemish that you might be able to see, but you should focus on the T-shirt, which you can get at T Public. There, shameless plug. Nice, <laughs> like that. And I'm You're hiding in the shadows that. to um, cover any blemishes. Yeah, it's like if I keep focusing in on my the brightness. We were talking about that before we recorded, trying to get the perfect lighting. So you know, our lighting budget here at Classic Chorus Club South is a uh, dollar twenty-two. So and I'm using at least $1.21 of that budget. Oh, speaking of $1.21 in budget, I wonder if that's going to come into play with any of the movies we talk about this week. I'm thinking it might. What are we going to talk about? We are going to be taking a look at what Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry was doing in the early to mid-1970s when he wrapped up Star Trek. He did a movie called pre-maids all in a row in 71 but then he kind of got the itch to do some television work again and so we're going to see at least his involvement in two of the three movies we're talking about this week his attempted pilots for a television comeback genesis 2 from 1973 planet earth from 1974 and then the third film in which he was not involved but it continued the the overall story idea Strange New World from 1975. Old business, don't have much this week, no feedback. But I like to think it's because we just had an episode a couple weeks ago. So 
takes people a while. takes me uh, years sometimes to send feedback to other podcasts. So uh, that's fine. I'm sure we'll have some next time. I know that some people made some general comments about the Barbara Steele episode. Everyone seemed to to like that we were recognizing Barbara Steele. And then our, our special Christmas Carol episode, I think the general consensus is that Alistair Sim is almost universally recognized as one of the best Scrooges out there. I will say I saw a poll that was taking place on IMDb for favorite Scrooges and Alistair Sim was only number three on the list. Hmm. He was behind Scrooge McDuck in (laughs) second place and Michael Caine from A Muppet Christmas Carol in first place. I don't know. What more do you need to say about that? That list was a little out of sorts. When you lose out to Scrooge McDuck, I don't know what you can say. I think people uh, were in the Christmas spirit, and and uh, hopefully, uh, if they didn't listen to that, you know what? You can listen to it uh, at any point. And uh, as with any of our episodes, call and let us know or comment on Facebook. And it doesn't matter if it's last month's episode or something from two years ago. If you're like, I know Jeff and I just said we're both woefully behind on our podcast. So as I always say, I tend to not leave feedback, but I should on shows when I get caught up, I think a lot of people are behind on their shows. So let us know what you think. Let us know what you think about King Kong. Let us know what you think about Day of the Triffids. We want to hear. Yeah. And I guess maybe we could take some responsibility of them not if we don't tell them how to. Let's give the number 616-649-2582. That is 616-649. Club! Good. We're back in in, uh, rare form for that. Had to do it. Call, leave us a a voicemail, uh, or you could send a recorded message to classichorrors.club at gmail.com. Facebook group page on Facebook, the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Lots of ways you can get hold of us, and we would love to have you participate in the content of our show. We do have some new members on that Facebook group page. We'd like to formally welcome them, although we probably have welcomed them on the page itself, but here in audio form, we welcome Joe Guada, Adam Freeman, the Then Is Now podcast, and Gene Murphy. Thank you for joining the group, and we look forward to seeing what you have to say. Yes, indeed. Welcome one and all. I do want to return to Christmas Carol for just a second because you had issued me a challenge. You asked me to watch a couple other versions. I watched one of them. I watched the... Oh, what year was it? MGM version? 38. With Reginald Owen. And uh, oh, it's been too long since I've seen it. I can rem- I remember, though, thinking, yes, overall, I did not like it as much as the one that we watched. However, there were parts of it that I did prefer over the other one. Overall, I did not like Scrooge at all. I felt he was miscast. I know a lot of people love him, but interestingly enough, in that poll, Reginald Owen was... Uh, next to last, and I can't remember who was in last place, but he was next to last on the polls. That movie, um, I actually saw like the last 10 minutes of it, I think on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Carla had never seen it, and, and her immediate impression was, she said, it just, she says it seemed off, and she didn't like how they they didn't do the Scrooge and Marley, or not Scrooge and Marley, Scrooge and a Cratchit scene in the office because in that movie, Cratchit gets fired. And so there'd be no reason for him to go back to the office, but Scrooge comes and 
really kind of shortchanges the episode or the, that not the episode, the scene and the experience of Scrooge and, and Cratchit kind of coming to terms, Cratchit realizing the new reality of, of who Scrooge has become. I think it's, it's totally missed the way they did that. And the whole time Scrooge's nephew is just kind of lurking in the doorway and that's the fun thing. There's so many different versions out there and you can find something that you like in all the different versions. And it's kind of fun to discover them. And I finished the book, uh, which I don't think I had finished it when we did the podcast. And, and I have found that my two favorite versions being the Alistair Sim version and the Patrick Stewart version really pull a lot from the book and the animated version from 71 which features the voice of Alistair Sim like its portrayal of the ghost of Christmas past is very accurate to how it's portrayed in the book more of a kind of a ghostly shimmering like figure which is a little jarring when you watch the animated version but actually it's very faithful to the book it'd be fun I, I challenge anyone you know next holiday season if you haven't read the book Read it and then, you know, watch some of the versions, watch Alistair Sim and Patrick Stewart and some of the others. And and it's interesting to see kind of these different film versions pull this or that out. You will find, though, that especially with Sim and, and Stewart, like a lot of the lines that they are saying is legitimately like right out of the original source material, which was kind of interesting. I mean, it immediately pulls you in when you're reading it. But there's there is some subtle differences here and there. It was fun. I'm glad I finally read that after all these years. I know one of my criticisms of the movie we watched was that it seemed like he started coming around sooner than I remembered, even in his first two visits. That was the same in the MGM version. So I think that's probably just my misremembering uh, that it was a more gradual or more sudden change really at at the ghost of Christmas future when he saw he was going to die. I always remember that being the point that he makes his big change, but it it was earlier in this movie as well as the one that we watched. And the book has the same thing. It's okay. a gradual thing. He begins to have a, a journey, you know, that ultimately culminates with uh, the ghost of Christmas future, finally pushing him over that edge. But yeah, it, the, the book follows that path like you see in in Alistair Sim and, and, and the other versions. Well, speaking of the future, how about that segue? Like it. I think we're ready to move into talking about our three movies. Why don't we take a quick break and we'll come back and start on that adventure or chore, depending how you choose to look at it. Dylan Hunt. My story begins the day on which I died. My last look at my world was to be from inside a pressure chamber at NASA's underground laboratory in Carlsbad Caverns. Support system readout, please. Support system channel 5. Support system readout, good. Stand by on EEG. Stand by on EEG. Nearly. Check telemetry, will you? Ready to go. Thank you. Rainbow, 
Well, it's your last chance, Dylan. I can still have a girl waiting here to revive you. I don't think NASA's ready for that method yet. I wish they were. Good luck. See you Tuesday. All systems indicate green. the development of a form of suspended animation which would allow our astronauts to make longer voyages through our solar system. It had been my decision that our method was ready to test on a human, so it seemed that any risk should be mine too. I had guided the basic research since being appointed chief of the project on February 14, 1979. I arrived from Washington, D.C. on the newly completed underground sub-shuttle. Perhaps my confidence in our experiment dated from that trip. By every measurement we knew of, the experiment should have gone perfectly. What we did not know was that a fault, a flaw, existed in the rock strata directly over our heads, and that the slightest ground tremor would be enough to dislodge it. So that's the setup. The introduction in all three of these movies give the setup. And really, there's similarities and differences. But in all three cases, it's from here that these stories spring forward. That's basically your pilot episode right there is that introduction. You know how they've gotten into the situation. And, and it's what they do with it then to me that are the differences of these three movies. That may make no sense at this point, but why don't you, Richard, sort of dig in a little deeper to uh, Genesis 2? I think the one thing that Genesis 2 does that the other two don't is that it really does show more of the main character's kind of return and his coming out of the coma or the, uh, the not coma, suspended animation and getting back to, whereas the the, the second and third films cover it in the intro and then really just kind of almost dive right into the adventure. So Genesis 2 first aired on CBS television, March 23rd, 1973. Gene Roddenberry was on a vacation with his wife, Majel Barrett. Of course, everyone knows Gene Roddenberry created Star Trek. Majel Barrett played Nurse Chapel on the original series. She also played in the very first pilot uh, the character of number one, the female first officer under Captain Pike. She ended up marrying Gene Roddenberry. It was on that vacation. I think they were on some little tropical paradise. And he's like, I really want to get back to work on television. In the 70s, he, he attempts this several times. The Quest Star tapes with Mike Farrell, which in some ways was a precursor to the Data character in Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, that was a pilot for a, a series that didn't happen. Uh, in 1977, there was a movie called Spectre that was kind of Roddenberry's um, last attempt at trying to do a television series. And, and then he just segued from there to 
uh, getting back into Star Trek. But even then, initially with Star Trek, he focused on TV. It was going to be called Star Trek Phase Two. The cast was going to come back and it was going to be about their second five-year mission. Leonard Nimoy, he wasn't going to come back. And it was after Star Wars that they said, wait a minute, we should turn this into a big theatrical film. And then Roddenberry kind of began to take a back seat to his creations because Harv Bennett was more involved. But then there was Star Trek The Next Generation. He revisited and finally got back into the television mold again. Genesis 2 was one of his earliest attempts at trying to get back to weekly television. And I think there was a lot in this movie that could have worked as a weekly television show, especially like this one and Planet Earth. A combination of the two, I think, really would have worked. But of course, neither one of these movies that Roddenberry was involved with end up going to television, weekly television series, because of the time period. If you think about it, it was hard to get a TV show on the air in the 1970s, especially if it was science fiction. There wasn't very many science fiction shows on television in the 70s, and the ones that did They were typically one and done, right? One season, if they made it one season. Think about shows like Planet of the Apes made it half a season. Logan's Run made it half a season. Westworld didn't even make it past, what, two or three episodes. Battlestar Galactica, one and done. And then it came back for a very ill-fated Galactica 1980. Buck Rogers got two seasons out of it, but even then it had to go through a major revamp in its second season and that was a half season and it got canceled it wasn't common for science fiction shows to make it to television not a surprise if you would have put this on in the 1990s late 80s 90s when first run syndicated shows were all the rage then a lot of shows do finally get greenlit because they're not having to go on a network They're just, they're being made and picked up by television stations. And interestingly enough, as we'll talk about that, that's where the character of Dylan Hunt finally saw a weekly show decades later. 1973, the character of Dylan Hunt, though, didn't make it for a couple of different reasons, as we'll talk about. In this first movie, actor Alex Cord was cast in the lead role as Dylan Hunt the man out of time. He's put into a suspended animation, an earthquake happens, and he wakes up centuries later, because 1979, when he went into suspended animation, and then 2133 is when he's discovered and wakes up and is a man out of time. Alex Cord was, I feel, part of the problem with this. He lacked a certain amount of charisma for me as a lead actor. He did a lot of television work, Route 66, Night Gallery, Six Million Dollar Man. He was Archangel on the Airwolf series. He has a particular style. I think you either like him or you don't. I was on the fence with him, but I kind of felt like there was a lack of emotion or humor at times in his performance that I think ultimately may have hurt the movie from really being considered to get picked up. Because when this movie ultimately doesn't get picked up, 
one of the things that Roddenberry was told is we need a little more action. And it's very similar to how Star Trek started. Star Trek The Cage was too cerebral, according to NBC television. They wanted more action. And so when they do the second pilot, where no man has gone before, William Shatner is, he's got a little bit more humor to him than Jeffrey Hunter's Captain Pike did. He was certainly a bit more action-oriented. And that was what got the show to finally get picked up. It's kind of the same case here. It's like Roddenberry went a little too, I think, cerebral at times with this. He threw a lot into this movie and a lot of backstory that is missing from the other films, which I think is a big plus for this one. The action really didn't come into play until the final act. And Alex Cord, for me, wasn't quite the action star that I think television audiences were looking for in the early to mid-1970s in this type of show. Maybe later on, I think Alex Cord might have been able to pull it off, but not in this time period, at least in my opinion. I liked him. I don't think I liked him as much as John Saxon. I made a note he was kind of a cross between Sam Elliott and John Travolta, just kind of his looks. Shirtless quite often, nothing wrong with that. I think all of these shows, I, I kind of wanted to mention, have a certain amount of sexuality to them. And, you know, whether it's their stories about males and females. And, and here, you know, when he's waking up from his sleep, the female says he must have been a handsome man. There's that aspect of, of sexuality I think they're all kind of playing with a little bit. I think maybe they were choosing certain characteristics from him than others. And yeah, they opted to want more action and humor and personality really to the character, which is probably why they made a change. But I didn't mind Alex Cord. I didn't dislike him. I just, I felt like there was something lacking. And I think what they were looking for at the time, comparing again, his performance to John Saxon, which we'll talk about when we get to the next movie. And I think that's just Alex Cord because I've seen him in other things and that's who he is. That's his style as an actor. Not too long ago, saw him in his uh, $6 million man episode and he's very similar, you know, in style. So it's like, and I've seen him in other things. I'm like, that's just him. And so I think that it'd be interesting if you take this script and put John Saxon in it and add that little humor that John Saxon can do if given the right material, this movie might have have made it, I think, because it's got a lot of pros in it that ultimately I think are missing from from Planet Earth because you get a pretty good solid backstory. You get to see a lot of the underground packs organization, whatever you want to call it, you know, their compound. That's what I was looking for. You get a lot of scenes with the transport tube. I forget what they call it. There's a lot of scenes and explanation of what it was. And even like the little control panel off to the side, they built this pretty big, expansive underground set. You get to see a lot of like the different groups, the teaching of the kids, the fact that they've saved all these art pieces and all these things. You get a lot more of the background of PAX in this film. You see the elders or the leaders of the community having several meetings. You see that they're keeping an eye out 
beyond their compound. There's just a lot of that you don't quite get in the next movie. And I think that's a big plus for Genesis too. It's like they, they were really focusing on the backstory and then giving you a snippet of what was kind of out there because it wasn't just one group of people out. You know, it's like several different groups. You, you see the more barbarian nomadic like group that, that is kind of living in the one shuttle area. There's a brief mention about the women who are subjugating their men, the men as slaves. It, it gets a little cameo appearance. And then you've got the, the main society, Tyranians, and you get to see a little bit with them and, and the fact that, well, they're using the power station. They've got this, what looks like this idyllic society, but really it's a classic case of kings and queens running this kingdom and the you know humans being subjugated and used as slaves, the rulers ruling by fear with the weaponry that they have. And I think that's where you look at it and you think it'd been interesting because I think you get the feel for like where the show could have gone as Dylan Hunt and Pax were out looking and journeying out there to see what was out and encountering the different groups and kind of the story of the week format because they wouldn't have done a serialized format at this time. So it would have been like the group of the week or the story of the week. I think you could have done the proverbial bottle show, right? And do something within the PAX compound. But then you could have had like the landing party going out and encountering the new planet of the week. I mean, that's where I think Roddenberry was kind of going and sticking to his Star Trek formula and creating this new world and thinking this is where we could potentially go because you've got these tubes can pretty much go anywhere in the world, right? And so you just got to be able to get from point A to point B. And then you got all sorts of possibilities with that. The tube breaks down and you've got to have the engineer can't give them any more or trying to fix something. They get stranded somewhere. He could have easily taken some of the ideas that he did for Star Trek or were used in Star Trek and adapted them for this new series. And in fact, Gene Roddenberry had like an entire season worth of storyline storyline sketched out. And several of the ideas ended up being used for Star Trek later on. Sub shuttle is what they called the, the tube. And yes. that was awesome. I loved the effect of that. And that was I, really- I thought that was so cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah. a lot of possibilities with that. You mentioned Planet of the Apes. Actually, I read that CBS picked Planet of the Apes over this. Interesting little tidbit there. To me, I don't know that it's just that interesting a concept. I mean, yes, you say they could go all places over Earth and unlimited possibilities. Instead of a different planet each week, it's a different place. But this is a future where, by all looks is fine. I mean, it's 2133. They do say that bombs went off there. So there was some type of war, but they didn't do as much damage as people thought. I think it would have, and granted, this is 2021 now, not, you know, 1973. To come back, to wake up and have the world be ruined, I think is more interesting. I think there's more potential there for finding mutants and strange species. And I know this had mutants as well, but their mutants have two belly buttons. They're not like before. In some cases, there were some others. 
Now to what you were saying about these episode concepts, I read some of those. To me, any one of those is more interesting than the stories they chose for yes. any of these three movies. I agree. And I, I really agree. think if they had come out of the gate stronger with a more compelling, interesting, unique story, they may have seen the potential and it could have gone further. I wholeheartedly agree. I think the potential was there, though. They could have encountered, as, as the shuttle goes into a new area, you're basically seeing a small snippet of the world. That's not to say that somewhere you know, across the United States or somewhere, maybe there is a more damaged area. Or maybe you know, an area that really even saw less damage and has continued living their world. I think the potential was there that they could have encountered a pretty wide variety of people, and maybe they could have encountered an area that was more damaged than others. But yes, there's the comment that he makes about how the airport was gone, and there's absolutely no semblance that there was anything there. Granted, we're dealing with how many centuries here? 150 years, give or take. A lot can happen in 150 years. But I think there would still be something there, maybe not visually from a distance, but maybe maybe exploring a certain area. But then again, you've got other buildings that look like they're totally fine with the with the Tyranian. I think that's just the more simplistic writing style of, of 1970s television mindset. 21st century writing would put a lot more thought into it. And CGI technology would allow you to create a more believable world. You're limited with 1970s television budgets. I mean, look at Planet of the Apes, a series that I I haven't seen for a while, but I love because it's Planet of the Apes. But they went pretty much different group every week. And it was pretty, pretty basic fun, but they didn't really look too far outside of the parameters they'd already established in the movies and what was clearly established in this series. And it became very formulaic, which I think probably played a part in why Planet of the Apes didn't last long and why some of these sci-fi shows at the time didn't survive. You've got to have that perfect blend of solid writing and a solid cast and a vision. And I think that's why Star Trek, the original series, succeeds and succeeded at the time in a way that other shows couldn't get past their half a season or season. You had a solid group of writers and you had a solid cast, humanity, humor, camaraderie, the sense of adventure, and your dollar twenty-one budget. What can you do with it? You cover up the lack of the fact that you don't have a big budget by solid writing and solid acting. And that's where a show can succeed and can go on for the three seasons that the original series did. Gene Roddenberry is, he was good at at having the initial idea, but he needed a solid group of writers to carry that vision on to the next level. Yeah, the best Star Trek episodes weren't written by him. No, no, they weren't. That's the thing. You know, Gene Roddenberry absolutely gets all the credit in the world for creating the world of Star Trek, but the world was enhanced by the solid group of writers that they had, the staff that he had working around him, the producers that carried the show on. 
Roddenberry's, you know, he had initial story ideas and like he did the same thing for Star Trek. First pilot doesn't get picked up. Hey, we're going to do a second pilot. And he had some story ideas lined out. You know, he had like the Omega Glory and a piece of the action were a couple of his his storyline ideas. But the storylines themselves were eventually fleshed out by other writers. Not trying to belittle what Gene Roddenberry did, but Gene Roddenberry had enough to get him to this point, and then he needed the writers around him to expand and go on to the next level. And so what we have with Genesis 2 is it was really solely his world, and it only got to a certain point. And I think he needed help in, in expanding that if you're in for this pilot to get it picked up and to make it to a series. Cause he wrote and he produced heavily involved in this first movie. And dare I say that might be a little bit of its weakness is that I think he needed somebody else involved, which we end up do seeing what in the second movie he did have some help on the second movie. And I wonder if that wasn't maybe studio direction. We'll talk about that. But the person who ends up helping him, to the best of my knowledge on that second movie, is not somebody that he worked with, but looks like it was somebody that was maybe part of the studio system. Mm -hmm. And I have a feeling that maybe they said, why don't you have so-and-so sit in on you and help you flesh out your ideas a little bit? If he would have had that on this first movie, been interesting to see what the results would have been. You mentioned the characteristics, the writing and the acting, and I would add the characters. You've got to have compelling characters. And Star Trek had that. You could tell me better if they had it right out of the gate or if they developed, but iconic characters. I'm not sure any of these movies really have one. They're obviously trying to make it Dylan Hunt be yes. the main character. He's the Captain Kirk of this universe. Yeah, and, and even in, more so when you got John Saxon in the lead role. You can't just have Captain Kirk. You need to have Spock and McCoy and Scotty and Yahura and Sulu and Chekhov and all the others around him. As great as Captain Kirk was, he needed that bigger picture. Any version of Star Trek, I mean, sticking with the Gene Roddenberry universe, right? Patrick Stewart's amazing as Captain Picard, but his world is enhanced by the people he has around him, whether it's a Riker and Worf or whether it's, you know, some of the new characters, which... Their, mind, their names are escaping me from his new series, but you had some great supporting cast members that helped him carry the show. Any of the modern Trek shows, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, on into like Discovery, you've got a great supporting cast and they all play a part in, in helping the show progress. And I think that there was some possibilities in this movie that we just didn't quite see enough of it, but then there was also some pretty big weaknesses. Like, so we have the character of Isaiah played by Ted Cassidy. We don't see enough of him. I love Ted Cassidy. And I think that there was a potential there for his character to be a little more interesting. I wanted to know more about his background because it's hinted at that he's some type of Native American background or something so yeah let's put the white guy in that role that's okay <laughs> gotta go with the time period and that's what you went with 
we see him in action a little bit. He could be an action star. He had a look that was awesome. He had a voice that was awesome. I think that, again, you're dealing with a 75-minute pilot movie, so obviously you can't have a lot of him. But I could see that if this would have gone to a series, it would have been fun to maybe give him an episode or two or three to expand on him as a character and to kind of see where they could have gone with that. I think there was potential there. You look at some of the other things that he's done. For for those of you who don't know who Ted Cassidy is, he was Lurch on The Addams Family. He was uh, lots of Star Trek. Well, he had a couple Star Trek appearances. First season, he was the robot Ruck in What Are the Little Girls Made Of? He was also the voice of Balok in The Corbinite Maneuver. Lots of voice work. He was also in Lost in Space. He was uh, in The Six Million Dollar Man. He was Bigfoot. In, in several episodes, Return of Bigfoot and Bigfoot 5. He died in 79 at a very young age of 46. And I, I didn't write down what he died of. He was very prolific in voice work and, and cartoons at that point. I think there was a potential there for him. I think there was a potential for the character of Primus Isaac Kimbridge, played by Percy Rodriguez, because I liked Percy Rodriguez. He had a presence about him. If you haven't figured this out, there's going to be a ton of Star Trek references in this episode. Percy Rodriguez played Commodore Stone in the first season Trek episode Court Martial, where Kirk's put on trial. He was the portmaster, I think, on the Starbase. But he was also in shows like Peyton Place, Mannix, Planet of the Apes, lots of TV work. He had a presence about him. Majel Barrett, she always pops up in his in his work, in his films, she plays the character of Primus Dominic. Of course, she was Nurse Chapel, as we said, number one in Star Trek. She was also the voice of the computer in practically every version of Star Trek. She was also Waxana Troy in Next Generation, Deep Space Nine. She was in Westworld. She was also in West Star Tapes Inspector. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about her involvement in continuing the Dylan Hunt story in the 90s when she was bringing some of Roddenberry's unfinished works to the small screen. She died way back in 2008 at the age of 76. One of the few of the original cast that I didn't get a chance to meet. She was at a Trek Expo down in Tulsa the one year that I did not attend. One of the one of the few years I did not attend. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to meet her. She had the ability to have a presence on screen if given the right material. But then you got to go to uh, one of the weaker parts of this, and that's the character of Harper Smythe, played by actress Lynn Marta. Lots of TV work, Canon, Kojak, Rookie, Starsky and Hutch, Charlie's Angels, a couple of you know, movies. She was in Joe Kid. She was in Footloose. I did not like her portrayal in this. I don't think she had the gravitas as an actress. There was no sexuality in her performance, which... You know, you were supposed to kind of get the hint that there was this, maybe this hidden sexuality that was starting to kind of blossom towards the end, courtesy of Dylan Hunt. But I don't think there was any chemistry between Alex Cord and Lynn Marta. And so, whereas you definitely get that in the second version of Harper Smythe in the next movie, I don't think you got it in this one. Marriott Hartley... I'm always on the fence with Marriott Hartley. She plays the character of Lyra Ah, the Tyranian. 
She played Zarabeth in Star Trek, our yesterday's episode. Got it on with Mr. Spock in that one. She's in The Incredible Hulk. She was in The Return of Count Yorga, Logan's Run. Popular television actress. I've never really been drawn to her as an actress. Her performance never really quite pulls me in. She always comes across as a little whiny and a little needy. (laughs) Something about her performance has always kind of thrown me off. But she's the villain of the piece. It's kind of left at the end, whether or not she's alive or not alive. Clearly, she would have returned in a future episode, I think. There was that opening. And was she really bad? Was she good? I don't know. There was kind of the potential that she'd be one to kind of like, you trust her, and then she turns on you, and then you trust her again. She was, I guess, the pseudo love interest of sorts for Dylan Hunt in this one. But again, I just didn't really feel the chemistry between Alex Cord and Mary Hartley, which again, I think was needed in this movie. And I wasn't getting. I think one reason this maybe wasn't the best story for the pilot is at least I didn't really know who the good guys and bad guys were. I mean, she's there at PAX when he wakes up and she says, we've got to get out of here. PAX is the bad guys. We don't ever really get to know the PAX people in this movie very well. We see a council meeting or two, but then they leave and they go to Terrania. I didn't know for a good long time who the good or bad guy was. Then I felt like at times they kind of tried to make her the Mr. Spock character. She was half human, right? And even you said she was a potential love interest near the end when she ends up helping him a little bit. She says perhaps her human half doesn't want him to be harmed. So there's a little bit of Spock thing there. And I kind of thought, oh, she's going to join the band and be part of the team now. She's going to turn. But then she does have that sort of ambiguous ending. And then there's no mention of her in any of the other movies. That whole thing is a little problematic to me. There's a lot of people who like this one the best out of the three. I think Steve Sullivan likes this one the best. I know a few other people were commenting on that as well. I think there was some conversation about that. I like it the best from the perspective of the production. I do think it has the most thought, most setup. I think it looks great. There's not really any bad, terrible 70s shots. And we watched this on Blu-ray, and that's going to come back later because I want to ask you when we watch Strange New World, there's such a difference in quality, and I don't know how much of that is credited to the format that you watch it. But this looks pretty good. Even the and this is going to come around to another problem, but they're, they're on the hill and they see Terrania in the distance. And it's this, obviously a matte shot, you know, that, and that's fine. Yeah. It doesn't look bad, but it's this city with domes and towers and it looks pretty good. They get there and it's like, what college campus did they shoot that on? It just does not match the overall. They tried to go with the, with like a building that looked pseudo-futuristic. And yeah. uh, it almost looked like, there's a, and I know that I've heard the name of the complex in the uh, first season Star Trek episode, Operation Annihilate, where Captain Kirk's brother dies. Was it Deneva or Deneva 4 or Deneva? Anyway, they filmed it on location on like a business complex somewhere in California that was futuristic. And it did. I mean, it looks, it, and then some of the buildings look very familiar. So I'm wondering if this was maybe part of that. It didn't have like the big buildings like they had in Operation Annihilate, but 
I'm wondering if, if there wasn't some of the same location shots. There was this attempt to kind of make it look pseudo-futuristic. Yeah, you see this dome society and you don't kind of get that. And again, okay, it's your budget. You're a 75-minute TV movie. You don't have the big budget. You can do the matte painting, but you get there and it's a little, you're let down a little bit. You got to go with that. That's the budgetary limitations of the day, I think. And that's kind of what I'm talking about when I'm saying like the setting of Earth in the future and everything not being that unique. This isn't going to sound counterintuitive, but somehow if they're on an alien planet and you see familiar buildings, I don't know, I'm more accepting of that. I'm, I'm like, who knows what it looks like on another planet? You know, maybe they have Earth's blueprints and built buildings, you know, I, I'm somehow more accepting of that, like in Star Trek. But here I just, I want to see something different. It's the year 2133. If it's going to be interesting week after week. That type of visions of futuristic worlds were limited to novels and comic books because there's no budget with that. You can create whatever you want in a book or a comic book. But as soon as you've got a, you know, or even like an animated film, you can certainly do some expansive things. Think about like uh, the movie Heavy Metal. There's some pretty futuristic things in that. But once you start putting it in front of the camera, you've got to have a budget to create a futuristic world. And if you don't, and it's certainly if you're limited to television budget, you can do a matte painting, but otherwise you either got to build a set or you got to go to a location and hope for the best. And I think when you look at the set that they built for Genesis 2, that's the plus because they they had a vision and it was kind of futuristic. The sub shuttle was awesome. But then the location shots, which are always good to have in a movie, get away from the sets, but you're limited. Looking at the buildings, I'm like, so are those leftover from the war or is this something new that they built? And if this is something new that they built, not very creative, basic, I guess, but I guess you're also limited to what technology you'd have, construction abilities you'd have. And they're supposed to be this futuristic society. They've come up with this pretty cool pain stick, but they went kind of basic on their village, but not according to the mat shot. It all comes down to budget. Always ultimately hurts. But I think costume design kind of, it did kind of remind me of Star Trek a little. Not a surprise, Bill Tees was the costume designer. And of course, he's from Star Trek. And he does the work on this movie and Planet Earth as well. There's obviously some similarities to what he kind of created for not the Star Trek uniforms, but for like oftentimes you would see uniforms on like star bases or mining colonies or whatever. That vision that he had for how the future would look clearly continued on into his work here in the seventies and eventual work on Star Trek, the next generation, there's definitely some similarities. And even with the women, the way they dressed Lyra's costume looks like it could have come right out of a sixties Star Trek episode. Any chance the costume designer of Zardoz, because I, I saw Sean Connery quite a bit in uh, some, some of those costumes that the men were wearing. I don't know. That's, that's interesting. I don't know if he worked on that or not. I don't think so. 
maybe some inspiration, whoever did do the, the costume work on, on Zardoz. Zardoz. And that's in my head. I hear that voice. <laughs> Zardoz. And the two navels, I got to, there was a running joke with this that the reason why we saw two navels is really Gene Roddenberry's response to the fact that he couldn't show navels back in the 60s. That's like Barbara Eden couldn't show her navel on I Dream of Jeannie because showing the navel on television was, I guess, one step away from sex on TV. I don't know. Maybe there's some like naval fetishists out there, but I've never thought of the naval as being a sexual thing. I don't know. I'm sure there are. And power to you on that. That's why and I guess that's a joke is why the two navels was to obviously try to create this alien look without giving her pointed ears. He could get away with that in 73 and he couldn't in the 60s. I guess that was some stuff behind the scenes. We should probably give a little bit of credit to Gene Roddenberry. We've been talking about some of the stuff that he's done, but he did a lot of work before Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry was very prolific in, in television. So he wasn't just a Star Trek guy because he did work on shows like Mr. District Attorney, Highway Patrol, Have Gun, Will Travel, The Lieutenant. These were all the shows that he did prior to Star Trek. So he had a presence on television before creating Star Trek. What happened was, of course, you create this big beast called Star Trek and you kind of become stereotyped or cast in that mold of like, this is what you can do. I've never seen the movie Pretty Maids all in a row, but I've read some things about it that interest me. And maybe that's something we can cover on in a future show, because there's certainly enough that we could talk about with Gene Roddenberry, whether it's Questar tapes or Spectre, some other work that he did in his quest to kind of get back on TV. But Star Trek was always the big beast that was luring him. And there's a lot of Star Trek in this and his attempt to kind of capture that genie in the bottle again, capture that lightning again. He was still obviously heavily influenced by Star Trek. There was a lot of ideas and such in this that I think influenced him. And obviously even the use of familiar faces Star Trek wasn't a big thing in its original airing, was it? Didn't it become big in its reruns? Yeah, I mean, it was moderately successful, but not in an overall huge success. I mean, it got canceled in its second season. I think it may have even been canceled or on the verge of cancellation after the first season. But it definitely did get canceled after the second season. There was a big letter writing campaign by B. Joe Trimble and the show comes back. And it was supposed to be on Monday nights. And Gene Roddenberry was excited about this. Hey, we get another season. And then they moved it to Friday nights, which especially in that time period, Friday nights was the kiss of death because you didn't have VCRs, DVRs. Friday night, people were on dates. So if your show ended up on Friday nights, you had to target the at-home audience or you weren't going to be seen. And for a sci-fi adventure series to be shoved on Friday nights, your only hope was that you were going to be focusing on the, the, the dateless nerds that were at home watching TV. Other than that, you were losing your audience. And Gene Roddenberry got so frustrated, he really didn't work on the third season. Fred Freiberger was the one, if I remember correctly, who was the main producer and really was the one who kept the lights on in the third season. Roddenberry kind of checked out because he was so mad at NBC for going back on their word and shoving it on Friday nights. 
then it gets canceled again and a letter writing campaign didn't work. And then it got popular in syndication. You had 79 episodes, which in itself is weird because you had to have 100 episodes normally to be considered viable for syndication. But they sold it and it became popular with a lot of college age students. It caught on. It started to snowball and get bigger and bigger. Initially, no, it wasn't a huge hit. My point on that is that it ran from what, 66 to 69? Yeah. This, we're in the early 70s. For me, the height of Star Trek was about this time, a couple years earlier, I guess, because I remember I was ordering everything, stuff, film clips and postcards and everything and went to a convention. And I remember when, whatever, what year did Spectre come out? 77. Well, so that's actually after this. It seems like that maybe he was in some way trying to recreate Star Trek after it had become so popular. This was the time that these movies all came out was when Star Trek was at the height of its popularity. It took a few years. It was building up. 73 was when the animated series returned, debuted on on television that fall. They had formed Lincoln Enterprises was the company that was selling all the stuff. I'd love to have one of those catalogs now. I remember those Lincoln Enterprises catalogs. It was just from cover to cover. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. They were the ones selling film clips and snippets of of actual film and, and scripts and books and everything imaginable. And I remember seeing stuff for Genesis 2 and Spectre and those catalogs. Clearly... He was envisioning that Star Trek's become this big beast. We're making some money off of it. We're selling stuff. Let's see if we can genie in a bottle, capture that that lightning again. Didn't quite happen, but he, he did get a second chance, which is where we go into the next movie. But before we get to that, though, I do want to comment that the mo- this movie was directed by John Llewellyn Moxie, well-known for things like The Saint, Mission Impossible, Mannix, Taste of Evil. I think you've mentioned his name before on your blog is talking about 1970s well-known in a television director. And I, th- I think he did good with what he was given in this movie. So the only other little things I've got, we were talking a little bit about the uh, storylines briefly, and we kind of stepped away from it, but some of the early ideas that he had, there was an episode that he had called Poodle Shop, which essentially is what planet earth becomes he had the initial ideas for the episode that eventually became The Child on Star Trek The Next Generation when Troy gets impregnated by an alien and gives birth to a child. He revisited that script when he was doing the scripts for Star Trek Phase Two. He then took that and it ended up being used for Next Generation. So some of the ideas, he kept them and, and would eventually see fruition Here's a, I know you are a musical fan, and I, I believe you are a Grease fan. Didi Khan had an uncredited uh, cameo appearance. I did not see her in this, but according to IMDb, she appeared as a TV actress. And I'm trying to remember at what point was there like a TV camera or a, like a vision or something. I'm drawing a blank. I don't know. I I have to go back and and see if we can find her. But apparently, 
Frenchie from Greece uh, and Greece too, D.D. Khan had a, uh, a cameo in this movie. And also should mention this too. The only time that Gene Roddenberry ever appeared in Star Trek was as the voice of the chef in the first season episode, Charlie X. One of his script ideas was King Charlie X. He was using these names. And and I kind of thought, because it just kind of, one of those things, you look at this and this and this goes to this. And I thought, and, and he does this again in Planet Earth. And I'm not knocking Roddenberry, but you know, sometimes he he had names or things he stuck with or people, and he and he kept revisiting them. And the name Baylock, which is Ted Cassidy's, he voiced the character of Baylock in the Corbinite Maneuver episode. That name pops up in the second movie as one of the characters. And I, when I heard that, you know, I never caught it before. When I heard that, I'm like. Wow, that's a unique name, and I guess Roddenberry liked it. I just thought that was kind of funny. Roddenberry, you know, a lot of people love him, and and some people kind of say, look, Roddenberry gets too much credit for some of the stuff he does. As I said in the beginning, as we were talking about this, Roddenberry had ideas, and he needed people to help him flesh out those ideas. And I think he had a really good idea with Genesis 2. I think he just needed somebody to help him flesh out. And I think maybe him being the writer and producer, maybe he needed to have a little bit more outside involvement to help flesh out this movie before he presented it as a pilot. And it would have been interesting to see what what the results would have been if he had had some more outside help. That's all that I've got. This and the next movie we should mention are available on Warner Archive Blu-ray, which is how you and I watched it. Image looks amazing for 1970 yeah. TV, the best it's ever going to look. And it's available to rent on Amazon Prime. And I would assume it's probably the same print being used there as well. For what was once a very hard thing to find, Genesis 2 did not make the rounds on syndicated television. It didn't get played too often on TV after its initial airing. It never got a VHS release. It wasn't until Warner Archive started doing their DVDs that they released on DVD for the first time. It was one of those things where you had to get a bootleg copy if you wanted to see it. And now, of course, we're seeing a a pristine print. One of the benefits of living in the times that we do, we still have to deal with bootlegs on some things. But with this movie, it's never going to look better. Where do we go from here? Do we go up or down? We'll see. We'll be right back. is the 22nd century, the land renewed, the air and water pure again. The conflicts of the past are gone. It is a new earth, new peoples and new customs. In some places, bizarre savagery. In others, advanced cities. Everywhere, new challenge and new adventure. And this is also the story of Dylan Hunt, lost in 1979 in a suspended animation accident. Over a century and a half later, in the year 2133, he was found and awakened by the people of this city called Pax, Peace. The one place on Earth which escaped the final conflict of the 20th century. 
the one place on Earth where civilization did not perish. Dylan Hunt is one of them now, leader of a PAX science team exploring a much-changed world, part of the PAX dream of rebuilding on Earth a new and wiser civilization. Their mission is mankind, rebirth of planet Earth. very interested to see what you have to say about this, Richard, because to me, it's much more of a sequel than it is an actual standalone pilot for a new series. I think that's a, that's a very good point, because whereas Genesis 2, we get a lot of the idea, background, visuals, everything about him coming out of suspended animation. This one, the opening that we just listened to, pretty much just says, this is everything that's happened, and now we're smack dab in, in episode two. Yeah, it was an interesting approach. The network said, hey, we need some more action, or the, uh, I guess not the network, because CBS did the first movie, but ABC did this one. Maybe the production company, whoever produced it, said, look, let's let's give this another try, but we want more action. And so rather than retell the story, um, Roddenberry decided to just go smack dab into the action. I think that it works in some ways, doesn't in others. You don't get that true pilot sense of this is the, the beginnings of the story. It really does feel like you're missing out on all that. But this allows, again, with the limited 75-minute running time, You've got to tell the story, and I think that they just go smack dab into the story, and I think within the first two minutes, there's more action in this movie than you got in the entire first film, which I think is what they were looking for. Planet Earth, April 23rd, 1974 on ABC television. This movie played a lot on television when I was a kid. Local ABC affiliate, Channel 10, KAKE, had it in their movie package, and it would pop up with great regularity on Saturdays or Sunday afternoons. If there wasn't a sporting event, it would pop up. And so I saw this movie quite a few times when I was a kid and continued to see it pop up on television until I finally acquired a bootleg copy of it at a Trek Expo convention. They had a big video retailer there that had everything you could imagine that you wanted to have on a real DVDs or VHS before that. And that's how I got Planet Earth. And of course, it finally got released by Warner Archive. For me, this was the version of the film that I'd seen so many times. And so I'm very familiar with this movie. John Saxon takes over the lead role of Dylan Hunt. He's the one that does the narration that we just heard. And he is very much like a Captain Kirk in this one, to the extent that he loses his shirt at one point, he action sequences, he even does the uh, the flying dropkick maneuver at one point. But John Saxon also was a well-known student of the martial arts because he was friends with Bruce Lee. He had just done Enter the Dragon, and he had already done at this point trying to think from a timeline perspective. He had probably, I don't know where it came in before, if this came before or after, but he had just done the $6 million man day of the robot episode where he was part of the very first big bionic battle on the $6 million man. 
His character, I think John Sloan, does battle with Steve Austin. And in fact, it was his robot that actually had the first bionic sound effects. That battle between Steve Austin and John Sloan was enhanced by the fact that John Saxon could fight in real life. And he brought that to his roles. And that battle is still one of the most iconic moments in Six Million Dollar Man's entire run. And it set the precedent for all future bionic fights. Much more charismatic than than Alex Cord. I've always liked John Saxon. I've always wanted to see more of his earlier films. No, he's never going to win an Academy Award for acting, but he can always deliver in the movies and he always entertained. John Saxon, of course, doing classic sci-fi films. He did Joe Kid. He did Enter the Dragon. Horror films like Black Christmas and Nightmare on Elm Street. He also would later work with Ted Cassidy again. He played the character of Nedlick, one of the aliens in Return of Bigfoot. We just recently lost John Saxon. He died last year at the age of 83 of pneumonia. I know that he was suffering from dementia. He was in a nursing home, I believe in, was it Kentucky or Tennessee or somewhere? His wife moved him away from Hollywood to the Midwest and to a nursing facility that she could live with him and they could have a normal non-Hollywood life. The last interview that he did, his wife did most of the talking, but they were talking about the nursing home was having John Saxon movie nights and recognizing this Hollywood star that was now living amongst them. He is an actor that I wish I'd had the opportunity to meet. I know that Vince Fertullo interviewed him on the B-Movie cast because he did appear at a Monster Bash. I've always wanted to meet John Saxon, and and unfortunately, that is never going to happen now. And when I heard that he was suffering from dementia, of course, that made me incredibly sad. I hate to, to see anybody suffer from that. But that interview, it warmed my heart. He was getting this recognition, even in this, as he was entering this next phase of his life. And to see the love that he had for his wife and, and they had for each other. I mean, she was clearly didn't want to leave his side. And so she uprooted their entire lives to get him somewhere where they could live out the rest of their lives together. Going on, I, I, John Saxon's always been somebody special to me. That's why I, this movie I've got a very strong connection to because I love him in it. Similar ideas in this movie. You've got Pax. The Earth has gone through some type of apocalyptic event. The timeline in this one is the same. But while we have the sub shuttle and we do see it, and they use that set a couple of times, the underground facility is now, we assume, is like under the above ground facility, which, again, we're using some futuristic 1974 buildings as the version of PAX is now just not underground. It's also above ground. You get basically a few shots of this above ground PAX. It brings it to life a little bit, but it also, in this movie, we don't see as much of of PAX. We see the landing party out on their adventure, but not as much behind the scenes. We don't see the meeting of the council or anything like that. We do have a few scenes where we see the character of Peter Kimbridge, using a familiar name again, played by Rai Tosco, gets injured, gets shot, 
and plays into the overall premise of they got to get him medical help. They've got to find someone who can help him. There's a few scenes that we see in regards to that. In fact, that's like one of the two key scenes where we see the sub shuttle underground complex. Machel Barrett is in this one, but in a much smaller role. She plays a character called Yulof, who I'm assuming is she some type of medical official or something. Never really explained exactly what she does, but she's the one that reports. She meets them when Kimbridge is brought back and then reports later on that Kimbridge is, is in need of medical assistance. She didn't have a huge role in the first movie, but she's got a smaller role in this one. Just to add on to what you said, yeah, Pax is much more firmly established. You know they're a good guy. And this this is sort of like the first episode in that, you know, yeah. they go on a mission from Pax being the headquarters. They go on a mission and it's always in the background because they are trying to find the doctor that'll cure Kimbridge back at headquarters. Dylan Hunt is doing like a captain's log, right? To, to kind of yeah. help the narration move along. And we go right into like, I guess it was a bit of a recap, the, an adventure that they're on. They're on a mission, right? And we see our first appearance of the Krieg mutants who are using old cars and converted them using wood burning stoves or some. <laughs> Those were so cool. I My note on that was it was like a mix of the Flintstones and Mad Max. Yes, mean, yes. They were really fun. They were fun. I mean, yeah, it was, it was, it was a fun, crazy invention that, Totally worked. Absolutely. Mad Max meets the Flintstones. That's perfect. As we would see as the movie progresses, because the Creek come into play in the climax of the film, there are mutants who have a ridged forehead that is virtually identical to how the Klingons would look in Star Trek, the motion picture. And that has to be Gene Roddenberry's influence, obviously. He, he comes up with this idea And then when Star Trek, the motion picture comes around, the decision is made that we're going to make the Klingons look alien without any explanation. And they now have a, uh, in that first movie, the, the ridged forehead part is very much, very prominent down the middle. And it's, it's a carbon copy of what we see for the Krieg. And the next time we see the Klingons two films later in Star Trek three, the search for Spock, the ridges aren't as pronounced the whole forehead is a bit more ridged and the Klingon appearance is played around a little bit, which Star Trek fans tend to forget that the Klingons have had a lot of different looks. Even the character of Worf, you know, when you watch him in early episodes of Next Gen over the course of seven seasons, and even then when he goes to Deep Space Nine, his appearance changed as well as they fine-tuned his makeup and such. The people who really kind of holler and scream that the Klingons don't look right in Discovery. I was one of those in the beginning and had to admit things change over a period of time. You've just got to go with the flow a little bit. But the Klingons look originates here in this film in Planet Earth. We have a Krieg commandant. Commandant. (laughs) You're going to keep that in probably. A Krieg commandant. Good gravy. Played by John Quaid name you're not going to know, but he looked familiar to me. He's a character actor. He pops up as a bad guy in a wide variety of shows. Manix, Bonanza, Buck Rogers, Galactica 1980, movies like High Plains Drifter, Mr. Rico, Outlaw Josie Wales. Very prominent, familiar, always playing the bad guy. Usually you're kind of a gruff character. They are 
not a huge part of, of the story, but they do come into play in the beginning because they uh, attack the team and injure Peter Cambridge. And then in the climax, they come into play where they attack the, uh, the women's comp- compound. They're not as warrior-like as the Klingons. They're strong and they're brute force, but ultimately they're, they're mutants. They're not the smartest tools and, you know, sharpest tools in the shed. Yeah, I liked how their story wove through and, and they came back down at the end and they, yeah. they looked fantastic. But most of the times they had those helmets on and I don't know what you call those. They're sort of, to me, they remind me of like World War II German yeah. helmets yeah. of some kind. You know, they looked a little silly riding around on their vehicles, but when they took those off, they were awesome. I wish they would have shown, I wish they could have, they could have done them without the helmets and it would have worked better. I don't know if that was just for budget reasons. They didn't have a lot of money to put into the prosthetics, maybe, but it would have been better to to show them without the helmets, I think. Do we even see more than one person with the ridge on his head? That's a good question. We might not. We've got the makeup guy for one day, so we're going to do this one scene. Otherwise, let's put a helmet on. We've got some familiar characters, some familiar names played around in this one. Ted Cassidy is back as Isaiah, has probably about as much to do in this one as he does in the last one. Kind of the promise that maybe we would have been able to see more of him if this show would have come to fruition. Harper Smythe gets a makeover, new actress, and is so much better in this film than she is in the first one. Actress Janet Margolin plays a very, she's a very attractive and she's very, not overtly sexual, but there's a sexuality with her character. She's an interesting actress. I was trying to think if I'd seen her in anything else. She was in The Greatest Story Ever Told, Take the Money and Run, Annie Hall. She was also in Ghostbusters 2. She died in 1993 at the age of 50 of cancer. Gosh. Not a lot of other things that she did, but boy, she really works in this movie. And there is obviously a storyline that could have been picked up in future episodes. There's an attraction between her and Dylan Hunt that you know would have played in future episodes. Even to the point where the scene where Dylan Hunt is intoxicated, you know, he's been drugged or whatever, and and he's like trying to please his mistress, and she's like, "No, we we need to go." And then he, no, I'm, I, he pleases her because he's kissing her, and then that's where you know the character of uh, was it Jonathan Connor is kind of standing watching, you know, and you kind of wonder is like if he wouldn't have shown up, she probably just would have given into the whole thing. It, it was. There's a few things like moments like that where this one didn't shy away from the humor, didn't shy away from the sexuality that the first one seemed to be afraid to take that extra step. And I think that's what kind of surprises me that this one didn't make it because that's what they were looking for in, in, in television. I think there's a few reasons why it didn't get picked up and we'll talk about that. We have the character of Balok. Everyone knows who Balok is if you watch Star Trek. Different character, but same name. Christopher Carey played him. He was with Isaiah in most of the scenes. Character actor, a lot of stuff like Batman, Big Valley, Time Tunnel, Garrison's Gorillas, movies like Death Race and The White Buffalo. He died in 2000 at the age of 69 of cancer. Another one that died early. We have the strong female lead of Marg. She's the the leader 
of sorts. She's like one of the top women in this in this society. She can be swayed pretty easy. She's got this obviously these sexual desires that are suppressed in this society because the women have turned the men into slaves through a, a potion that's put into their food. It subjugates them. They're good little dinks. That's the name they call it, which I thought was so stupid. Ultimately, right, they look for the strong males who can be good breeding material. And of course, naturally, Dylan Hunt is considered a good breeder because he's our Captain Kirk. He's he's going to, to have at least a couple of women in this in this 75-minute episode before it's done. Not at first, though. They, at first, they think he doesn't have enough spirit. Right. Yes. And that's because he's playing it, kind of playing it low-key to not be okay, and obvious that he's out of place, but that changes soon. Yeah, that changes soon. Yeah. And then ultimately, the whole sequence between Dylan Hunt and, and Marg, you know, when he's like talking about his 40 wives and the, the, the process and everything, I thought humor that was lacking in the original one. Clearly, I could see Captain Kirk doing this with an alien, and he's practically did in other episodes. The premise is pretty simple, right? I mean, you've got the character of Kimbridge who's in need of a doctor. Dr. Jonathan Connor has been captured, they know, or last seen in this area that's been kind of unexplored where the women subjugate the men. So they send the team off to, to go investigate. They split the team up, which Isaiah uh, said, bad idea. He knew what he was talking about. He and, and, and Balak get captured. And then Harper Smythe and, and Dylan Hunt infiltrate and find out that pretty basic plot they find out you know again that the men are being subjugated by chemical substances in the food if you take that away the men will immediately bounce back and the women realize ultimately that they prefer the men that way and they can actually be side by side and that there's a potential better society there. But there's some really interesting things that happen along the way. Like when Harper Smythe meets one of the other women and immediately kind of says, well, I guess I got to go into challenge mode. Right. And because that's when she realizes that's what, you know, she knows that's what this society is about. And she challenges the lady and Harper Smythe, you know, subdues her fairly quickly. But then she, you sees that the kids were watching and she immediately backs down and, and said, I'm so sorry. And then, of course, that's when the lady realizes this is a person that, that is not part of their society, clearly, but sees things in a different light. Because clearly she sees things in a different light. And she sees that it's better to have men by your side than subjugated. And clearly she's the mother to the children. And you start to see a different side of the society. I like that scene. There's several cool fun scenes involving, like we said, the Dylan Hunt, Harper Smythe scene, Dylan Hunt scene with Marg. Marg, should say, is played by Diana Mulder, well-known in the Star Trek universe. She played Dr. Ann Mulhall in the second season episode, Return to Tomorrow. The third season episode, Is There in Truth No Beauty? She plays Dr. Miranda Jones. She came back and played Dr. Pulaski in the second season of Doc, of uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. She also played the voice of Dr. Leslie Tompkins in Batman the Animated Series. It also popped up in a wide variety of other TV shows in the 60s and 70s like The Invaders, Mannix, Cannon, McCloud. Character actress in some ways, but well-known in the Star Trek universe. 
and does really well here and actually kind of shows a sexuality that she typically doesn't in her other roles. The character of Dr. Anne Mulhall in, in Return to Tomorrow, there was a little bit of this side of her, but she actually definitely shows off quite a bit of leg in this one. And even in the final scene where the different women leaders are kind of all deciding, well, we're not going to drug them in anymore. You don't see a close-up, but she's got a really low-cut blouse on that is very revealing. I had never caught that before. I'm like, that was pretty out there for 74 TV and for a science fiction show. But then you don't get a close-up on it, which I'm sure there's probably reasons for that. That would have kind of caused the censors. But it always amazes me to see Diana Mulder in this because she's usually not like that in other roles. She plays it very well. And there was some chemistry, odd chemistry of sorts between her and Dylan Hunt that kind of worked. A lot of chemistry between Dylan Hunt and Harper Smythe, I thought, that again, that could have been played off in in future episodes. Yeah, I've never seen her in a a role like this. Was she in something else later on after Next Generation? Number one, I don't picture her as young as she was in this. I don't know that I've ever seen her. And I know Next Generation wouldn't have been that that much after this. Well, maybe a decade. I don't know. Very uh, a warm, uh, funny role for her. And I'm just not used to that from her. Even in, in her 60s Star Trek appearances, like when the character of Dr. Miranda Jones, not a very overly warm character. And Mulhall, yeah, there's a sexuality about her character in that. Not to the level that we see it in this movie, but yeah, it's, I never envisioned, I always think of her as Pulaski on Next Gen for some reason. And actually she was Rosalind Shea on LA Law. That's who I remember her from. I don't know if you ever watched that. I never did, no. Oh, she was a bitch on wheels and her famous death scene was she stepped into an elevator shaft when the elevator (laughs) was there and plummeted to her death. But she was, she was nasty. She was great in that role, but that's how I, picture her so this is a far cry from that and she's very abrasive as dr pulaski in next generation she was only on for the second season she replaced dr crusher and then gates mcbadden came back in the third season she definitely like she viewed data nothing more than a robot for those fans you watch these shows and and, and these episodes you're like i don't like her because she doesn't like data and she's very much more abrasive challenging Picard's authority at times. She does warm up as the season progresses. She had some good episodes, which showed more of her human side to her. But then, yeah, Gates McFadden comes back and you never hear of her character again. But yeah, this is a different role for her, but it worked. I, I thought she did well in it. Roddenberry was involved in this one, but he did have some help. So he he wrote, he was the executive producer on this one, but there was some other producers involved. So he wasn't as heavily as involved in the production of it. He was getting some help. Juanita Bartlett was the co-writer, not a name that, you know, a lot of people will know, but this was like only in her like third year in Hollywood, at least as far as credits go. And she was doing some TV stuff again, Mannix, Bonanza, Rockford Files, Greatest American Hero. She was a producer on... The Rockford Files and Greatest American Heroes, Spencer for Hire. She did do some work, but again, not a name that you recognize. She actually was pretty heavily involved in the the end of the Rockford Files run, like the last season and then on all the TV movies after that. 
So this is one of her earlier things. And I had to, I kind of said this earlier, I feel like she was maybe placed in by the studio that said, Gene Roddenberry never worked with her on anything else. And he oftentimes worked with some of the same people. So I'm wondering if maybe the studio, she was like a writer for hire at this point or assigned to it. I'm really curious as to how much she worked with Roddenberry. Did Roddenberry write something and then she came along and massaged it? I can't find anything out there that that really explains maybe what her role is or was at the time. Curious as to how that came about. And again, with Roddenberry's involvement, he was the executive producer, but the main producer on this was Robert H. Justman, who did 71 episodes of Star Trek, 25 episodes of Next Generation in its first two seasons. He worked with Roddenberry, and Roddenberry relied on him to kind of take his vision to the next level. And I think that's why this movie has a different feel than the first one. Roddenberry, again, if you go back to that original track, The Cage, a bit more cerebral, Genesis 2 kind of has that same, a bit more cerebral, less action. And then so Roddenberry brings somebody in to say, okay, here's an idea, take it to the next level. And then you get this one being a bit more episodic, less of a movie feel, less of, it's certainly not a pilot feel to it, but more of a taste of what this TV series could have potentially have been. We've talked about budget and then that's where this movie for me feels a little less than Genesis 2. I always felt with Genesis 2, because of the underground PAX facility, they built this set, and then they only use it a couple of times in this movie, and they rely pretty heavily on on some location shots, which really play a big part in this movie. And I feel like this movie had maybe a smaller budget. Sometimes it felt smaller, but then other times felt bigger in a way because it's like you're outside of that PAX facility. And the only times we see the, the the new version of PAX is in a handful of shots at the beginning and the end. Uh, the rest of the time, the initial complex or whatever, where they're training the dinks or like Marg's compound, which looked almost the same, like almost the same set. I don't know if you felt that way. I don't know. In a way, the locations worked in favor of this. And maybe it's because they didn't go to what was supposed to be a glamorous city, but, you know, it was basically a rural type place with houses in it. It didn't bother me like it did in the first one, the locations where they went. And I didn't really associate that with budget, but I think you're right. It's kind of like, well, they clearly had like a, a studio location they could go to, which is where, like, if you think Planet of the Apes, did a lot of location shots like this. So it's like every village setting kind of looks the same, just from some different angles. And then they'd go into like a a destroyed city, which always kind of looked the same, never quite completely destroyed because you could go into buildings and have some scenes. And I'm not knocking Planet of the Apes. I love I love the TV show. It's it's fun. The location shots here don't ruin it for me, but it did kind of feel like it's easier to deal from a budget perspective to do location shots than it is to build a set. And they clearly still had this set in existence. I wonder, you know, how much of the set that they actually had left over. Cause they really 
don't show any anything else other than that initial shot of the of the shuttle. Now, they don't even show the control panel off to the side, and I'm wondering that's maybe they just had that piece that was still there. That's what they went with. This was directed by Mark Daniels, who yes. directed. You were probably getting there. Sorry, no, fifteen episodes of Star Trek, so that also contributing to the Star Trek feel, I bet. Yeah, I think Roddenberry bringing in somebody he worked with before. So I was like, okay, bringing in a familiar director. He did 15 episodes of Star Trek and some of the best. The Man Trap, Space Seed, which is the con episode, Court Martial, Mirror Mirror, Doomsday Machine, Private Little War, Who Mourns for Adonais, which is the Apollo story. Yeah, he did do Spock's Brain, but I think we can cut him some slack because the others are really good. He did a lot of TV work, too. He even did, and it's kind of interesting because he did episodes of, like, Hogan's Heroes, Alice, Flo, <laughs> I Love Lucy. He did do at least one episode of the uh, series Way Out, which is always a series that kind of fascinates me because it was had such a short run and we're missing episodes, you know, and some episodes aren't publicly available. We saw that one at, at uh, the 2019 Monster Bash. It's always kind of made me want to learn more about that. Martin Grahams has written a book about it. It's kind of on a, my wish list someday to get that book because I'd like to know more about that series. I think there was kind of a style. I look at some of these episodes like the battle scene in A Private Little War. If you're familiar with that episode at all, it's where... I think the planet's called Planet Neural, I think. They don't even give it really a name on camera. It's a place that Kirk has been to before, and the Klingons have, have been there and have given them guns, one side of the faction. It's basically one side's got an advantage over the other. Spock gets shot in the beginning, and Kirk and McCoy come back, and there's the big ape-like Mugatu, and... Kirk gets attacked and then gets made to be like a slave of sorts to the woman because of the roots that she used. And the, and the battle sequence at the end, yes, I think Kirk even does the flying double drop, you know, the dropkick thing that, you know, you see here. And I'm wondering if, if Mark Daniels was hearkening back to that and saying, okay, because there's a lot of similarities, a lot of similarities a style that he had as a director. Princess Leia. Do you know which actress that was? I can't figure out. No, I I, I couldn't figure that out either because I'm not, sh- I think they mentioned her name, but. It's got to be uh, Bronta, don't you think? She just, her character seems like a Bronta. Yes, I think, I think you are correct. If that's that. true, her name's Corrine Camacho. And I texted you the instant she came on. Yes. Said, Princess Leia buns. I knew it. As soon as you said that, I'm like, planet Earth, there we go. Yeah. And, you know, predating Star Wars by three years. No, now how common are Princess Leia buns? Could this be an influence on George Lucas? Heaven forbid George Lucas take material from other things to create his world. Uh, Ooh, those are fighting words. Like, I love Star Wars. And, and, and you know, I, I've never gotten into the Star Trek, Star Wars yeah. battle. They're two totally different things in my mind. And I love them both. Clearly, Star Trek more, but that's simply because it's been a bigger part of my life. But I do enjoy Star Wars. But yes, come on, let's be honest. George Lucas, some of his ideas, and all science fiction is taken, everything is taken from previous material to one degree or another. But George Lucas, is, is, is he's taken a few things along the way. Nothing wrong with that. 
Did he see planet Earth? Did he say, that's the look I want for Princess Leia? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe Gene Roddenberry should get partial credit for the character of Princess Leia. How about that? Yeah. She cracked me up. I mean, such a taskmaster. She she was like Ilsa, she Jedi of the SS, you know. I like this movie. Uh, to me, it, it's always been fun. I wish, after revisiting Genesis 2, I would love to see a, a blending of, of these two movies somehow. The bigger background story to Dylan Hunt, but with John Saxon playing the role, and then expanding the adventure a little bit so that you, you see this bigger version of Pax in the background. And the, but then you've got this adventure on the outside world. Interesting. If we could have got a blend of the two, I think, I think you'd have an interesting, if the third pilot would have been to taking the best elements of one and two and merging them together, I think you could have got a TV series out of it. I think you could have got one from planet earth. Carla said that she said, how did this not become a TV show? And I said, well, it was harder to get TV shows on television back in the seventies and certainly sci-fi shows. I said, we just didn't have a lot. Think back then, if you were a a sci-fi fan, you didn't have a lot to choose from and what you did get didn't last very long. A couple of episodes, maybe a season. It wasn't until first run syndication in the when like Star Trek the Next Generation came along and you didn't have the networks breathing down your back you could have a little bit more freedom in what you did you had the flexibility of being on in different markets at different times to what worked for that market and you could go seven seasons you wouldn't do that on on a regular network but you could do that in first-run syndication. And that's where a lot of shows began to thrive and shows that never would have made it. And we live in an era now where we got so many streaming options. If you've got a, a, an idea for a TV show, yeah, you can get at least a season of it made and maybe even two because everybody's got to have programming now. And as even more apps are being launched, it's like, you got an idea, Netflix might be interested, maybe HBO Max, sci-fi, FX, you know, you name it. Everybody can the potential is 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 out there and it's a lot easier to get your show on TV now. 1973-74, yeah, not so much. It was hard. I could see this following a Star Trek path if it did go to series that this would be the first episode and then a couple episodes later they would edit the parts of the f- of uh, yes. two into, you know, a story sort of like Star Trek did. That, that could have worked out that way. You know, I didn't think originally I liked this as much, but reflecting on it and talking about it, this one is a lot of fun. I, I do like this one. It lacks some of the, the background elements that I, I think could make this a bigger movie. As it is, it's a fun 75-minute sci-fi flick, and it's enhanced again by the cast. I mean, John Saxon is is a great lead. Janet Margolin is got the, the sexuality to be a strong female lead, and then you've got the presence of like Dynamo there, who obviously probably she could have popped up maybe in a future episode guest appearance. They could have revisited the potential for Ted Cassidy's role to be something more than what we we got it in these two films. Don't sell him short, though. He he had a big scene at the end where his horse leapt over the wall. And he, yes. 
in both movies, he had some good scenes. Doesn't he like smash two people's heads together yep. or something? Yep. He's just this big presence. He wasn't the lead. He was a supporting character. I think we, you would have got some fun Isaiah moments in future episodes. And then, of course, you know, the end of the movie, Kimbridge is, is, is survived. You get the final scene at the end. There's a little bit of, of humor thrown in, you know, about being a dink and, and there's some banter back and forth and just a good wrap up like you would get in a TV show. And then, you know, was it John Saxon kind of comes towards the camera and stuff. Now on to the next adventure. It was like, yeah, they say a thousand new adventures. This has been one of them. Yes. Clearly setting it up for the potential series, which unfortunately never came. The only other thing I've got on this one, a little fun, little side note, the harpsichordist in the one scene is played by Craig Huxley. He played Captain Kirk's nephew, Peter Kirk, in the first season episode, Operation Annihilate. He also came back and played the character of Tommy Starnes in the probably worst episode of the original series, And the Children Shall Lead, when they bring the friendly angel and they chant. That's a bad episode. He had actually went in to do a lot of sound work. He's a musician, and he did sound work on the animated series, Battlestar Galactica, Star Trek The Motion Picture, The Black Hole, Forbidden World, The Beast Within, Friday the 13th Part 3, Aliens, Michael Jackson videos, still doing work in Hollywood. He's done sound work on The Orville and Dr. Sleep. He's found himself a career out there in Hollywood uh, as a well-respected sound guy. And he's got the little scene there where he's playing the harpsichord. And I feel clearly brought in because he had been on Star Trek before and, and Gene Roddenberry had to have had a hand in that. Anyway, that's my little my little tidbit there. On, on Nice. On I like it. Right, actually. Warner Archive Blu-ray, double feature, cheap. You can get both movies in the same Blu-ray for, what, 15 bucks, I think. A good double feature. We'll be back in a minute to talk about the last movie in our triple header, Strange New World. The Pax Space Laboratory. We were working on an experiment in suspended animation. That's me, Captain Anthony Vico. I went from test pilot to astronaut, and now I'm leader of the Pax team. Alison Crowley, navigator and communications expert. Pax doctor, William Scott. In our deep sleep, we thought all was well. While mission control monitored our flight path, they discovered a mass of giant asteroids hurtling through space directly toward us. They were able to recompute our orbit away from the speeding asteroids. They could save us, but not themselves. Meteors rained down on Earth for days. It was the worst disaster in the history of the world. saved us by extending our suspended animation. Our new orbit would loop the sun and return in 180 years. 
Back on Earth, only hours before the disaster struck, several hundred volunteers, our loved ones among them, entered the underground suspended animation chamber at PAX headquarters. Like us, they were in a deep sleep. by the computer and it gave us our instructions. Return to PAX. Free those helpless people from an endless sleep. That beautiful round ball was a welcome sight. Whatever had happened to it didn't matter. It was still our home. We moved through the connecting tubes to the shuttlecraft in the exit chamber. I fired the engines and set our glide path for re-entry. We safely blasted away from the space lab. we find in the strange new world i'll let you start out with this one rich how would you like to lead us into the discussion of 1975 strange new world you know silence isn't good for podcasting (laughs) (laughs) hang on i'm coming i'm coming yay though i walked through the valley of the shadow (laughs) of death A Strange New World, July 13th, 1975, ABC Television. Yeah, this is the third kind of unofficial attempt of getting this idea to fruition to television. I say unofficial because Gene Roddenberry is not involved in this one. He moved on at this point, but the powers that be said, well, maybe we could give this one more try, changing enough so that you're not really having to worry about Gene Roddenberry or anybody else coming back and saying, wait a minute, that was our idea. Really, the only surviving name is Pax, which is mentioned at the beginning. Beyond that, we don't have Dylan Hunt. We do have John Saxon back, but this time he's Captain Anthony Vico. PAX is not an Earth organization. PAX is a space station, essentially. We do have the idea of suspended animation is brought back again, but this time it's three people. Captain Vico, along with Dr. Allison Crowley and Dr. William Scott, right from the get-go, and I forgot how blatantly obvious it is as we're getting the background and we're seeing the characters and suspended animation, we get... Star Trek sound effects, the bridge. They didn't even cover up the fact that they were using just a a file from somewhere because you hear the turbo lift doors open and close. There's nothing happening. You know, it's just, I was like, look, I love the Star Trek sound effects. They pop up in a lot of things. And some of them were before Star Trek, but that was cheap for them to do that. And that just kind of sets the tone for how I feel about this movie. The premise is 
kind of the same in the sense of that Earth has gone through some type of apocalyptic event. And now Captain Vico and his crew are coming out of suspended animation. They're getting in a little space shuttle, taking them down to Earth. And they're in search of what is left behind on Earth. And they're trying to find, I think it's mentioned, right? The, the, the rest of PAX, the scientists or something. Like the headquarters or something that controlled the space yeah. station. Setting the premise of, well, we're going to travel and, and encounter different people every week, which is pretty much what Genesis 2 and Planet Earth was going to do. What do you have in, in, in the first movie that you didn't have in the second? Well, there was a bit more a background story. There was a bit, they went with a more, you know, maybe a bit more scientific-y approach to it. The second movie decided to go more action-oriented, not concentrating as much on the background, but added humor and added adventure. This movie doesn't really give a lot of thought to the science part of it and the background story. Again, it does kind of just do the cursory introduction and it really doesn't have the level of action and adventure in it. And it has zero humor. And it's longer. It clocks in, uh, what, uh, an hour and 40 minutes, I think. Yeah. So it was fitting in like a, a two-hour time frame as opposed to a 90-minute time frame on TV. Well, it's really two episodes, basically. It is. I mean, because it's clearly divided and there's two different stories. Yeah, even to the point of like at the start of, of the, the movie after they do the intro, you see the episode title pops up on screen, Animal Land written by Ronald Graham and Waylon Green. If you look on IMDb, there is a third writer, an Al Ramrus. Uh, I don't know if that's a pseudonym or not. I don't think it's credited on screen. I kind of went back to look and see if he did, and he's not. It, clearly, the first story was to be called Animal Land, but then they never show what the second story was called or who the writer was for that second story. Did they create this as two episodes and try to just mush them together into a movie, which certainly happens. There was a Tarzan series in the 50s. They did three episodes of it in an attempt to sell the show, and it didn't. And they just took all three and mushed them together and called it Tarzan and the Trappers and made a movie out of it. It happens. That's clearly what they did here. Very uneven movie because you've got two adventures. The first one takes place in a zoo, basically, and you've got a, a <laughs> kind of a bunch of rednecks. Of, of they're living in the in the zoo, right? And they're living off the land, and they're following their Bible, which is the fish and game guidebook that they find. That flipped, isn't that the second story? That's the first one, at least in the version I watched. Really? No, it's the the Martine Beswick story is first in on the DVD. Interesting. Now you watched the DVD from Warner Archive. Yes. I did not have time to order that. I watched what was on YouTube, and the Martine Beswick story is the second story. Obviously, they were interchangeable in, in different orders. That's interesting. That would be weird though that someone would have like re-edited the YouTube version. Why would you go through the effort of doing that? But that makes sense because I was reading a review of Strange New World and it was talking about 
you know, the, how uneven the stories were. And it was, it seemed to imply that the animal story was the second half. And I was like, well, that's not what I saw. I don't know. And if it's that's- also interesting because the, the ending is terrible. It just ends. I'm trying to think now how they wrapped up the Martin Beswick story, because if it has a better conclusion, then. Not really. I mean, it just kind of, that story just kind of ends too about the same way as the the animal story and there's not really a, a wrap-up per se of off to the next adventure type thing which is why i just it you know, i don't know this, this one no i don't like this one i this is my second time viewing it and i and i remember now why i struggled with it the first time the version i watched watching the animal version first i'm sorry that story was just droll it was hard to stay in tune with that story. I'm watching a YouTube version and it was not the best print available, not horrible, but not as good as what you watched, I'm sure. And that would may have made it a little bit easier. Still, the story was incredibly droll. I love John Saxon, but he's not given anything fun to do in this. He's not given any humorous lines. He doesn't have an opportunity for his charisma to really come forward with this with this script. Kathleen Miller plays Dr. Allison Crowley, the team navigator in communications. She had zero charisma as well. I, d- I did not care for her portrayal of the character. Very dry performance. Not a lot of credits in general. 15 credits, some TV work. Beyond that, she didn't do a lot. Keen Curtis played Dr. William Scott, who was the medical doctor. He's a character actor, popped up in a lot of things. Canon, Wonder Woman, Logan's Run, a TV show that I oddly remember from 1980 called One in a Million. He was in an episode of Star Trek Voyager called Sacred Ground. He comes across as a little abrasive in this one, dismissive of Dr. Crowley. But again, not a really likable character and I think that's the problem with these characters is like I wasn't really compelled to like Dr. Crowley I wasn't compelled to like Dr. Scott he has a bit more of a likable side in the Martin Beswick story than he did in the the jungle story I thought but not much I thought Um, he was the best thing about I mean he King Curtis I I love him he he was a good I do I like him as I mean yeah he Again, I hate to say this, but John Saxon, while I love him, he's just not given anything to do here. He's given lines to read. His natural charisma seems like it's held back by the lack of a script. He shines a little better in the Martine Beswick storyline than the jungle storyline or the animal zoo storyline, because that's just a, a bad story all around. That's so interesting watching that first because I watched the first half of this and I I kind of enjoyed it. And I thought, well, I don't know what Richard hates so much about this. And then that zoo storyline was a slog. So I can't imagine watching that first. I mean, you'd be... I wonder... You could even get to the second. I'm really wondering now which one's the real version. And I would have to think maybe your version is. But then, man, that really ends the movie on a, on a down note because then you go from an okay story to a a really lousy ending to a film. But yeah, so imagine my vision. I'm sitting there like struggling to make it through this zoo story. And I'm like, I am bored to death. And at one point I looked at Carla and she was totally out of it. I said, so what do you think? And she said, it's just, I am bored. She says, this is just 
not holding my interest at all. Clearly, she did not like this one. She did like the second story or the first story. Slightly better, but she found it very confusing. She she had a hard time with the Martine Beswick story. And she did not like the way that story ended. She said it just because it does kind of just end. It didn't have really an uplifting ending, right? Because like, everyone kind of dies at the end of that story. The science of it, you know, kind of not using it. They tried in that, the Martine story, but it's just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, there's clones and they want to know, I guess you clone so many times, it's like a copy, it loses, it degrades, you know? And so they're not really able to clone without the most recent clones kind of regressing or losing their minds or something. So they wonder if the pre-Holocaust blood would make a difference. So they strap down John Saxon. And then this, this is what I didn't like about King Curtis's character. He's like, yeah, I want to see what happens. Let's go along with this. You know, yeah. I'm gonna let, I thought, well, that, and he eventually turns, but that was like one of your heroes to yeah, bad guys. But then I just don't understand because they said they need nine liters of blood. And they say, well, the human body only has six. So why? why do well, you need- oh, I don't understand. Don't, doesn't somebody can, can't do the math and figure out they don't have enough blood, even if they take all of his blood. I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. I know. I, I, that story, I like Martine Beswick. She doesn't save the story, but she is a good actress, obviously plays the character of Tana. If you don't know who Martine Beswick is, she was in house of the Gorgon. Most recently, our friend, Josh Kennedy's homage to the hammer films. She is going to be in his new film, Cowgirls versus Pterodactyls, as the narrator. Classic 007 Bond girl from Russia with Love, Thunderball. Spaghetti Western classic of Bullet for a General. She was in Night Gallery. She was in Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, which is a film I you love. She was in two episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man. She was in the Vincent Price film From a Whisper to a Scream. She's serviceable in this movie, but she's not given a lot to do yeah. either. It's not a knock against her. She just doesn't have a good script to work with. We get Red Brown as the character of Sprang. (laughs) What can you say about Red Brown? Your Hunter from the Future, The Howling 2, and Captain America 1979. That's Red Brown. You either love him or you don't, or you just look at him for all his cheesiness that he brings to the table he was also in six million dollar man and and kolchak the night stalker and a few small roles he is got a cult following i'm sure i don't know if you're a red brown fan not i have not revisited those two movies from 79 the captain america films in a very long time because every time i think about maybe i'll check that out just for grins and then i immediately think of him and his motorcycle helmet and i'm thinking Nah, nah, <laughs> I can't do it. Ford Rainey played the character of Sirius. He was the leader of the people in the in the zoo jungle storyline. Popular character actor, lots of TVs and westerns, Outer Limits, Lost in Space, Invaders, Night Gallery. He was in Halloween 2. He would sometimes play a bad guy. He also played a show we've mentioned several times here, Six Million Dollar Man. He was the character of Jim Elgin. He was Steve Austin's stepfather. And so he appears in 
episodes with Jamie Summers and also appeared in several episodes of The Bionic Woman. I recognize him as an actor. He was under crazy hair and a beard, but his voice came out across. Written by Ronald Graham, who did some TV work. Waylon Green, who worked on... He did Law and Order. He did RoboCop 2, War Games. Al Ramras, again, crazy name, but maybe that's his real name. He did TV work like Rat Patrol and Invaders. Did some work on Island of Dr. Moreau, the 77 film. Directed by Robert Butler, who has a little bit of Trek history to him. He did lots of TV work. Twilight Zone, Batman, Invaders, Lois and Clark, moving ahead. He did the original pilot of Star Trek, The Cage. A little bit of Trek history there. A few supporting characters. Got to mention the character of Daniel, played by Garrett Graham. I can't honestly remember which version he was, which of the two stories he was in, because I just kind of blocked this movie out. But he was in Phantom of the Paradise, Chopping Mall. He played another version of Q in the Star Trek Voyager episode, Death Wish. And then Laura, played by Catherine Bach, who is best known as Daisy Duke on the Dukes of Hazard. The timeline is, is a little different on this one. They have it as 1994 and then 2174. I don't know if they just changed that for sake of changing it so that they wouldn't be connected to the original. There was some similarities between two other sci-fi projects. The vehicle that they're traveling in, when they come to Earth, they, they get this Land Rover, basically, in search of people. Very similar to ARC-2, the Saturday morning TV show, which did come after this, which begs the question, did ARC-2 maybe take a little bit of, of its idea from this? I thought ARC-2 executed it much better because I love that. That's a one-and-done Saturday morning TV show, but I love that show for what it offered. It was fun and lighthearted. And also a little bit because the vehicle kind of resembles the vehicle from Damnation Alley. I don't know what could have made this one better. A lot, actually. I struggled with this one, and I just I kept coming back to there's just not enough humor. There's not enough action. And if you were going to go for just a straightforward science fiction story, I needed to be entertained, and I just wasn't with this one. It had such a different feel from the first two movies. There's no chance this was ever going to make it to, to TV because it was just too dry. I thought it just very, very dry. Richard Farnsworth was also in it, and I swear I saw him in one scene. I thought he would be the leader of the zoo people. His name was Elder, and I saw him in one scene. But I think, if I recall, his like was the last name in the credits. It's like, and Richard Farnsworth. Because he would have, I don't know, at that period of time, maybe not, but he would have added some heft to the movie. I didn't do this research right off the bat, but I'm doing it now. <laughs> Great podcasting. The Doctor... The lead guy in the, the surgeon, James Olson. Yeah, the, thank you, thank you. So he's he's a character actor that pops up in in a wide variety of things. And if I remember correctly, he played in the Bionic Woman episode Fembots in Vegas. He was the uh, the son of the uh, the doctor from the uh, the first Fembot adventure, Kill Oscar. 
And he had, he was like kind of playing a um, Howard Hughes-like character living in isolation while he was continuing his father's work and bringing the fembots back. He usually plays a villain, it seems like, in a lot of, a lot of things. I don't know what else to say about this one. I, I, I didn't enjoy it. Well, um, so I want to talk about the quality because at first I thought, well, this looks more like a movie. It's grainier. It's darker. It doesn't look like it was TV. Then I realized, okay, number one, I'm watching DVD, not Blu-ray. How much difference does that make, do you think, in the presentation? And had this been a Blu-ray, would it have been crisper and brighter? But it just it had a different whole, to me, production quality difference than the other two. And sometimes that was a good thing, because like I said, it made it look like a movie, but then other times it was just so dark and murky. That's a filmmaking style or lack thereof. When I was looking at like what versions were out there, it was like, do I want to buy the Blu-ray of, of Genesis 2? I've got a bootleg of Planet Earth and it's serviceable, but I really love that movie. I think I want to upgrade. And so I, I went to see what was out on YouTube and Genesis 2 is out there. Planet Earth is out there. And then Strange New World is out there. Honestly, I, I thought the same thing when I was like taking a look at all three of them and saying, do I want to upgrade or can I just watch what's on YouTube? And I remember thinking Genesis 2, now I really want to see better print. Planet Earth, I want to see a better print. And then when I got to Strange New World, I was like, man, this is dark. I skipped through a few things and thinking, well, no, this is something I, I definitely looked stylistically different than the first two films. I think that's a style. I think for whatever reason, they chose to go with a more darker style. I don't really feel like if this was to get the Blu-ray upgrade that it would enhance it that much. Keeping in mind, you're dealing with made-for-TV movies in the 1970s. They're only going to look so good unless you have access to the original source material and you know run it through a high-definition upgrade and really enhance it. This is a Warner Archive collection. They're not going to do that. And do the original elements even really exist? Or are you looking at already a second-generation copy that they're using to make these films? I, I wonder whether the original prints exist for these. These are made-for-TV movies. I think a lot of those original prints are probably long gone, which is why we have so many made-for-TV movies that have never really been given official releases. I think they're, the access to the original source material is very, very limited, or they're sitting in an archive warehouse somewhere, you know, collecting dust and, and, and people don't even know where they're. Because there's movies, made for TV movies that have just kind of disappeared because no one even knows where the print is. It got a one and done airing and, and that's it. Kind of gets shoved on a shelf somewhere and may get rediscovered at some point. And that happens. It happens. The original version of the second pilot of Star Trek wasn't discovered until the last 10 years, I think. It was known to have existed, but for many years, it was just something you'd read about in a book. And then it started to surface, a print copy of it surfaced at a convention and was kind of circulating in the bootleg market. And then some images popped up and then somebody posted some images or some clips on YouTube. Finally, after several DVD releases, Paramount discovered the original copy of that. 
existing in their archives and put it out when they did the third season box set of the Blu-ray. There's some subtle differences with it, some different music and some different shots, some different clips that they cut originally when they tweaked it to make it fit the format because it was the third show aired on television. So as you said, they kind of took the pilot and made it fit into the series. And then even a few episodes down the road, they took the original pilot, put it into a two-part story and cut it up and made it fit. So I think that the original source material could exist somewhere. And yes, then you would probably get a better copy of it. The likelihood is it, it is more of a stylistic approach. This one, to me, struggling watching the YouTube version because it's not a great print. I'm not sure that watching the Warner Archive DVD would have helped it much, if at all. It sounds like, based on what you're telling me, no. <laughs> That's the answer to that question. I was just reviewing my notes, and it's interesting. This movie really, overall, is just like a big downer because the very end of the zoo story the last sentence is there's nothing we can do for any of them now let's get out of here and the ending of the first story is or i've got that flipped but the 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 other one is nothing's going to change if you keep following that book i mean it's like they've gone they've witnessed they haven't done anything to to help them to come out better than the story started it's just a no that's the thing right it's like if you look at the first two movies the second movie they did have a positive impact on on the women in the community and it's an uplifting end and the doctor gets saved, right? So everything's good. Even the first movie, it ends up certainly on a little bit more of a downer note because the facility got destroyed. And yes, you know, there may have been a few lives lost. Dylan Hunt comes across a little harsher in that first film. We didn't talk about that, but I forgot about that. He took life and they didn't like that. And told him, you're like, you want to be with us? You're going to have to change your way of thinking. And they softened that approach in the second film. You don't deal with that. It's like sometimes action's got to be taken, but you don't want to take life if you can avoid it. Still, both movies, there's a, there's a promise to a bright future, and you don't get that in this. Well, the jungle people are still going to be working with their book. Is there hope? I don't know. Not much. And then clones that are just, everyone's dead. You know, nothing we can do for them now. Very down, very downer. And I just thought of another difference between first actor and John Saxon. It's first actor's name, Alex Cord. <laughs> At the end of that one, you, like you said, he did take a life. And the, the people say, hey, you can stay with us, but you have to swear not to take another life. And he's like, oh, I'm not sure I have the guts. John Saxon, he's got the guts for anything. He doesn't even have to have a line of dialogue like that. So that's a good also indication of the different tone in these movies. But in the third movie, there's nothing for John Saxon to have guts about. It's just. No, yeah. yeah. If you so choose to watch it, folks, you can watch it on Warner Archive DVD. It's also available to rent on Amazon Prime, or you can muddle your way through a cheap free version on YouTube, which is, dare I say, probably the best way to go. Honestly, if someone's listening to this and maybe we're missing something and you like the third movie, let us know. I want to know. We normally don't rag on a movie, but we got to have something, a sub something, and there's just not a lot here that we can grab onto. So if we're missing something and maybe you're a fan of this movie, let us know. I'd love to hear somebody. I know that 
even Steve Sullivan, you know, who's incredibly positive and always finds something good. He made a comment about the third movie and he was kind of like, yeah, that third movie, he couldn't say anything positive about it. I think this is a movie that's probably, dare I say, probably the least favorite amongst anyone who's seen all three films. And I have a feeling that a lot of people will feel like us. But if you don't and you disagree, I'd love to hear from you. We both would. Yeah. Let us know. Let us know what we missed. This is the movie that made me somebody who, even sight unseen, I like to own the movies that we do on the podcast. My thing, you're a physical media owner as well. This is the movie that made me say, you know, I don't really have to own all the movies we do on the podcast. It's like, (laughs) maybe I should watch it first. And then if I like it, order it on DVD or Blu-ray. At some point, I wouldn't mind down the road, once this is out of my mind, borrowing your DVD if you still have it. I'd like to see a, a cleaner print of it to see if maybe it's easier to make it through. I don't think it's going to be based on your on your comments. And I'd like to see the flipped version yeah. to see how that my approach to the film, it just drags on right from the get-go, right? That second story was a little better. I I wouldn't mind revisiting it. Not not today, not tomorrow, but <laughs> somewhere down the road. Before we wrap up, I, I want to talk very briefly about the fact that Dylan Hunt, his stories were not done. When Gene Roddenberry died in 1991, Majel Barrett, his widow, wanted to bring to life some unfinished Gene Roddenberry projects. And the first that she did was called Earth Final Conflict. And this was a first-run syndicated television show that ran for five seasons from 1997 to 2002. This one was really nothing more than a handful of notes that Gene Roddenberry had about called Battleground Earth. Gene Roddenberry was getting this idea of the series. And I watched the first four seasons of Earth Final Conflict, and they lost me on the fifth and last one. A lot of turnover in characters and cast, and it was a show that I struggled with. The lead actor that they brought in, I think in the second or third season, Robert Leeshock, met him, nice guy, but the show struggled from trying to find its lack of identity. Not really much of Gene Roddenberry was in it, which a lot of flack at the time because they were their name was his name was attached but like okay well how much of gene roddenberry's vision was in it he did started to flesh out the idea of the show 20th century fox was interested at some point but he was too busy with other projects and then star trek the motion picture came around and then it never happened he died in 1991 it never got made until 97, when Major Barrett Roddenberry, by that point, decided to bring it to life. That show had, though, a moderate success, which allowed Andromeda to become available in first-run syndication. It ran five seasons. The first four were on first-run syndication from 2000 to 2003, got picked up by the Sci-Fi Channel, and its fifth and final season was on the, fi- on the Sci-Fi Channel in 2004, the premise was the character of Dylan Hunt had, was the captain of the system's Commonwealth ship, the Andromeda Ascendant, 
It's caught in the event horizon of a black hole. It gets frozen in time. He is reawakened 303 years later by a salvage crew and discovers that the Commonwealth has fallen. And so he recruits the salvage crew to restore his ship and to restore the Commonwealth which is the overall premise of the series. Kevin Sorbo played the lead role of Dylan Hunt. It basically took the idea of Dylan Hunt, suspended animation, man out of time, and trying to, instead of restoring Earth, it was set in a space theme, outer space, and given a spaceship and became its own show. I watched this in its early seasons and then eventually got out of it as they, again, kind of started going off in some different, the writing really struggled in later seasons. But taking a Gene Roddenberry idea and Dylan Hunt finally getting his television run a little late and a little different, but at least Gene Roddenberry's vision finally did make it to television. Did you watch either of those shows, Earth Final Conflict or Andromeda? I did not. Andromeda wouldn't be, it'd be a show I'd revisit. Uh, I'd like to see it. Kevin Sorbo's got some political beliefs that rattle some people in the sci-fi community. You've got to be able to set aside his beliefs from the actor. Earth Final Conflict is a show that's just kind of dropped off the face of the earth. I think the first season or two got put out on DVD and then it disappeared. Andromeda has popped up available on, like, I think Amazon Prime and maybe Earth Final Conflict is. Both shows have been kind of forgotten. You don't really see them talked or or seen much about, but Andromeda is one that I've seen a little bit more over the years. Earth Final Conflict just kind of disappeared. And again, it was an interesting idea of aliens coming to Earth and living with humans, but they're not quite who they appear to be, kind of like V a little bit. It was a show that just suffered from a constant change of direction and a constant rotating cast. Every season seemed to be different. Andromeda at least had an overall premise that stayed true to itself, but it kind of waned in later seasons and Andromeda wouldn't be bad to revisit. Anything else to wrap them up before we move on? No, I think final word, recommend Planet Earth, my favorite, then Genesis 2, and I can't recommend Strange New World. Can't do it. I am in agreement. We'll be right back. He is the last guardian of a fallen civilization, a hero from another time. Faced with the universe in chaos, Dylan Hunt recruits an unlikely crew and sets out to reunite the galaxies. On the starship Andromeda, hope lives again. We are back with new business, and I just have a handful of home video releases coming out. Uh, At the time we're recording this, I actually couldn't find what's coming in February, so uh, I'll just do here what's for the next couple weeks. I can tell you that I know when it's coming up in February, so I can help you out when we get to that point. All right. I'll I'll let you know when we're there, or, or you'll figure it out. January 19th, which if this airs when it's supposed to, will be tomorrow, 
Giant from the Unknown, 1958, from Film Detective. I think we talked about that, uh, how that's such an unlikely movie to get this big deluxe set that it has coming out with all sorts of really cool features. That'll be out. Same day, a movie from 1974 called The Hand That Feeds the Dead. Klaus Kinski is in that. That's on Full Moon Entertainment. Same day, a movie called Blue Monkey. It's from 1987 from Dark Force Entertainment. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. I have seen it. I remember it distinctly, the VHS box. And it's like a big bug movie, but it was sort of a cheesy, I don't know if it was a purposeful like throwback to big monster movies of the 50s. But if you liked it or haven't seen it, it's coming out on Blu-ray. And then, Richard, here's your second chance. On the 26th, the Gamera movies are coming out. They've got them broken up into sets. We have a Heisei era, a Showa era, and a Heisei trilogy. Those are all. Let me just say this. Aerial video. I have randomly gone to look for that first Gamera set in hopes that it's out there. And I don't know how many times I've seen one of these listed. And I'm like, there it is. And it's only 70 some dollars. And then I'm like, oh, no, it's that set. That's your cue, what's coming in February. A Santo movie oh. on February 9th, Santo and the Treasure of Dracula. It's the sexy Dracula version. I don't know which company is putting it out. I don't have it listed in front of me here. I think that's the first Santo Blu-ray appearance. I don't think we've oh. had, I'm not even sure we've had any. There's been some Santo movies that came out on DVD, right, that were a while back that were official and then they went out of print. You can find Santa without subtitles on some companies, but it's always hard to figure out what's real and what's bootleg. But I don't believe that there's been Santa on Blu-ray before this one. I've got this movie, Treasure of Dracula. I don't have this movie. I've got the Treasure of Dracula. I don't have the sexy version, which has a few Scenes, apparently, that Santo was not aware of that were thrown in to sex it up a little bit. He was not a fan of it. I will probably get this one because, you know me, I'm, I'm, I love my Santo. So I'm kind of curious to see what is added to this. We know that we're going to get a few more Santo movies later on in the year from Kino Lorber. Santo versus the Evil Brain and Santo versus the Infernal Men, the first two Santo films. This is not that. This is a a different company putting that out. Mm. You didn't miss a movie that is getting released this month as well. The movie Ngagi, which is not really horror, Kino. It's part of their Forbidden Fruit, the Golden Age of the Exploitation Picture, Volume 8. Ngagi was banned by the Federal Trade Commission because it has... Scenes of, how do you describe, you, I know you're familiar with Ngagi, right? Not really. Okay, I'll just read this review then from Amazon because I, I'm familiar with it, but I wasn't prepared to talk about it, but then I remembered it. The exploitation cinema had its share of scandalous films, but none is so mired in controversy as the bizarre pseudo-documentary Ngagi, purporting to be a ethnographic journey into the wilds of Africa, combines authentic footage Purloined from other films with outrageous scenes staged for the camera in Los Angeles. Among the hoaxes perpetrated are the discovery of the Tortadillo, a heretofore unknown species of animal, and the exposure of an indigenous cult that worships and sacrifices its women to gorillas. 
a particularly racist concept that would resurface in films for years, most notably as the dramatic springboard for King Kong. After spawning a whole subgenre of exotic shockumentaries, the originator faded into obscurity, mired in lawsuits, cursed by the notoriety of its title, and Ngagi has not been commercially distributed for at least 50 years. This 4K restoration from materials preserved by the Library of Congress marks the film's first home video premiere. It's on my list. Yeah, huh. I will probably pick it up. I know that it's going to be, it's not a Carla movie. Uh, <laughs> it is, it's definitely bizarre. It's not really a horror film, but it's it's like one of those fringe things, right? Because it's got like human sacrifices and implications of like gorillas having sex with women and really wild stuff for early 1930s. Curiosity is killing me. It's supposedly not a good movie, but Curiosity is killing everybody. So it comes out, according to Amazon, January 24th. Sorry, I missed that. That's something I saw. There was a lot of hoopla when it was announced. And then I just kind of forgot that it was coming out. And did you say the year of that? 1930, I think. Yeah, 1930. That's interesting. Anything else I missed? That's all that I have. Let's see if I missed any birthdays. On January 20th, 1920, DeForest Kelly was born. Excellent. Not that I would overlook him, but he does have horror cred. If you consider Night of the Lepus horror, you know, he does have cred. That's horrific, um, all right. <laughs> how many connections can you make to bring DeForest Kelly to Dark Shadows? Oh, gosh. I, my Dark Shadows lore is weak. Well. So. So DeForest Kelly was in a 1957 episode of The Web called Kill and Run. And The Web also had an episode called The House that was written by, I want to say Sam Hall, but now that doesn't sound right. But it was, uh, is generally thought to be a precursor to Dark Shadows. It has the same story about a a matriarch staying Mm. in her home and her daughter living with her and all of that. Forrest Kelly, Star Trek, Dark Shadows. How about that? Very good. I know that he appeared in a, was it late 40s film noir-ish film called Fear in the Night, which often gets kind of thought to be like a horror film, but it's more of a suspense thriller. I've never seen it, but I really want to. I always think about it and then never sit down and watch it. And then I'll remember it six months later. I'm like, I need to sit down and watch that one of these days. Conrad Veidt was born January 22nd, 1893. Our recent episode 51, The Sound of Silence, we talked about The Man Who Laughs. Gary Conway was born February 4th, 1936. He, of course, was in How to Make a Monster from 1958, Land of the Giants. If you recall, Richard, way back in episode three, we talked about him in our episode, How to Make a Teenage Monster. Yes, Another Dark Shadows, February 5th, 1941, David Selby. We've talked about Dark Shadows a couple times on our podcast. February 5th, 1906, John Carradine. I think of John Carradine from from horror, but as I was looking these up, I looked on IMDb, and he has been in some big movies that have nothing to do with horror. The Grapes of Wrath from 1940, Stagecoach, 1939, The Ten Commandments, 1956, That just adds fuel to the fire that I would like to do an episode about John Carradine at some point. John Carradine is an actor who I don't think ever turned down a role (laughs) and certainly did 
a lot in his career that just kind of makes you scratch your head. But then he's got those films like that, you know, that there was something about John Carradine. So I, I agree. That'd be a fun episode to do in the future. Absolutely. February 7th, 1812, Charles Dickens. To throw that in there, our last episode, we did talked about A Christmas Carol. And then very, very sadly, February 13th, 1932, Barbara Shelley was born, and we lost her just almost a week ago, uh, more than that when this airs, but on January 4th, she died at the age of 88. A lot of people, she was a favorite Hammer heroine, and I saw lots of tributes and acknowledgments on the social medias about that. And then, of course, we have a birthday. You know, I'm too modest to say it, but I'm not too modest to hint at it so that you can say our other big birthday of February. <laughs> our other big birthday would be uh, somebody by the name of Jeff Owens. That's right. Uh, February 16th. And, you know, I'm going to be 39 again. Yeah, all right, Jack Benny, you're kind of stuck <laughs> in that 39. So that is a, kind of a, a good opportunity, right, to kind of segue... Yeah. Into what we are going to be doing our show next month. Jumping a gun maybe just a little bit. No, that's fine. Let's go ahead. You mentioned your, your birthdays. The birthday boy gets to choose what we, we do in the birthday month. We had originally kind of toyed with doing this in, in December, and then the idea for Barbara Steele came up, and so then you like immediately claimed it. We shall do it my birthday month. So it is written, make it so, let's fly. And so next month. It's going to be either a really good episode, Richard, or else it's just going to be a disaster. It's going to be. Get it? <laughs> I think it's going <laughs> to. Okay, yeah, I wasn't even prepared for that. And I was like, no, it's going to be a good episode. <laughs> yeah, so we, we picked three disaster movies, which I think it's kind of fun. I mean, again, do they? is it straightforward horror? No, but, you know, we kind of sometimes go on the fringe and it's fun because what we did today was more sci-fi than horror. It's kind of fun to, to kind of go outside the wheelhouse every once in a while. You've been itching to do this for a while. We know that Jonathan, our good friend, went down a disaster path not too long ago. We are going to be covering the Poseidon Adventure, the original. We're going to be covering Earthquake and then uh, Airport 77, which is what, the second film in that series? Uh, it depends if you count Airport or not. Second or third. So it was Air, there was Airport, Airport 75, 77, and then 79. Key element here is not just disaster movies, but disaster movies of the 70s. That was a whole subgenre. I cannot wait to talk about that. Irwin Allen. It's going to be a fun episode. Well, I can tell you that for me, I've seen The Poseidon Adventure, but it has been decades since I've seen The Poseidon Adventure. And Earthquake, decades. I don't think I've seen Earthquake since maybe the the late 80s. I know that I've probably seen Airport 77, but again, decades and I have zero memories of it. So I'm looking forward. These are going to be practically three first viewings for me. I have two of them because I think I, you gave me your copy of the Poseidon Adventure because you upgraded, I believe. Got Earthquake. I got that on Blu-ray for a dollar at the dollar store. Lucked out on that. And I believe Airport 77 is available on Amazon Prime for rent, I believe. For those people who want to do a bit of homework beforehand, all three of these movies, I, I don't know. I'm sure that Poseidon Adventure and Earthquake's out there and for streaming, for rent. 
and all three are available on home media. So easy to find. Yeah, we'd love to have everyone join us. And do you remember why Airport 77 was the one we chose of the airport series? You chose it, so I don't remember. It's because that's the one that Christopher Lee is in. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's our horror connection, Christopher Lee. Nothing more horrifying than boats tipping over and earthquakes and planes crashing and sinking to the bottom of the ocean. That's... Well, you know, so think about it. We've got two horror legends with us next month, Christopher Lee and Shelley Winters. So, (laughs) uh, I mean, who else out there... I, I challenge you to find another podcast that will do the Christopher Lee, Shelley Winters episode like we're going to do. And I have to backtrack and do our anniversaries real quick, especially since yeah, you brought up Shelley Winters. No, that's great. Uh, January 11th, 1971, whoever slew Annie Rue. So there's Shelley Winters. Oh, there, there we go. We, of course, did our Hagsploitation episode back in episode 38. I still think we got a sequel to that coming sometime, but I'm not going to push my luck. I'm getting the disaster movies now. Also wanted to mention February 6th, 1974, Zardoz. We mentioned that earlier because of the costumes in Genesis 2. And then finally- I have that on my queue, my Amazon Prime queue. I am going to rent that very soon. I have this, and it's, again, this is a totally me experience, but I am like itching to do a a trilogy of of 70s films. I, I, Zardoz, The Man Who Fell to Earth, because that's on Amazon Prime right now. And A Clockwork Orange, which mm. popped up on Netflix. Carla just gave me a look, you know, and I, I mentioned those movies the other day. I was like, any interest in any of these? Definitely not in Clockwork Orange and Zardoz. She wasn't familiar with Zardoz until I showed her a trailer. And she just kind of looked at me like, are you out of your mind? She's like, Sean Connery did that? And I'm like, eh, you know, those post-Bond years. And Man Who Fell to Earth, I don't think I've shown her a trailer of that yet. So maybe it's got David Bowie, maybe. The final anniversary I want to do, and this is perfect. It ties everything up. January 30th, 1973, the movie Baffled, starring Leonard Nimoy. That's right. I saw that just the other day. It was on Shout Factory TV, their streaming channel on Mm. Sling TV. They've got a, a channel on Sling TV, and they were playing Baffled. I was like, when was the last time you saw Baffled being played on TV? I thought that was kind of cool. That's it for episode 53. Let's remind everybody how they can call. The phone lines are going to be burning up. 616-649-2582. Facebook group page, classichorrors.club at gmail.com. To send email, please send feedback. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'll go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, so what's going on with you? I, That's we, what I was going to do. I, well, I thought you, you, you threw us off by already talking about what we're going to do next time. I know. And so I thought that maybe you had forgotten to do that. What's going on with me? Quiet post-holidays. I did a lot of old-time radio Christmas adaptations in the month of December. I did get a review of the 36.15 Code Pair Noel movie that I watched on Joe Bob. B-Movie Cast also did a review of it. I did that over at Dread Media. So this month, I have returned to the Memiverse audio cast, did a review in the Kansas City Crypt of Invisible Invaders to tie into the Memiverse's latest film, The Unseen Invasion. You and I have both seen that. As we record this, it's the last day to watch it on streaming. So by the time you hear this, if you haven't seen it, you're out of luck. You'll have to wait (laughs) until it officially gets released. It's a fun film. I think that I would recommend it. It's not the best of the Memiverse, certainly not the worst. It's a fun film. 
that Chris made last year in the midst of the pandemic with the Phantom Lake Kids as technically the follow-up film to The Beast Walks Among Us. But since that hasn't come out yet, it's a chance for us to see these characters and give us an idea of what the more expansive Beast Walks Among Us film is going to be about. That'll be available to purchase and to watch soon if you missed the streaming uh, sneak preview that he did. Yeah, over at the blog, it's been kind of quiet. I've got some going back to my OTR Wednesdays adaptation of movies. Haven't done one yet for this year. Got busy this last week at work, so I just bypassed it. And also, Wednesday was a crazy day in the world, and I just didn't feel like throwing up a random old-time radio clip that day seemed appropriate when we had a lot of crazy stuff happening. It'll come back on January 13th. By the time you listen to that, that'll be in the past, but I'm back with that. That's about it. I've got some things percolating, but nothing that's really set in stone. I've got some articles that I've got on the horizon, but none of them really strictly sci-fi or horror related. There's some some other stuff that I want to kind of work on that's going to be on my Kansas City Cinephile site, which is kccinephile.com, and everything else would be on monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. What about you? I kind of took an unintentional break from classic horrors because work has just been so incredibly time-consuming and then exhausting when I'm not working. By the time this airs, I should be back in sync with all of that. I am, well, first of all, the Giant Monsters of Filmland book is closer to being released. I saw on Facebook last night a proof copy of that. So before long, that'll be printed and out. I have several things in there. I am actually working right now on a piece. I think I mentioned this before about Dan Curtis. I had the hardest time with this. The next book is going to be called Masters of Terror, and it's about people rather than movies. I chose James Whale, Kurt Siodmak, and Dan Curtis, all because I thought there was something interesting I am having a heck of a time writing about people rather than movies. So I asked for guidance on, you know, what are they looking for? And it's really just each author's interpretation. So I really am kind of focusing on aspects of their movies and then trying to weave in a little bit of their biography into that. I'm having fun with Dan Curtis right now because my theme was the influence of the classic gothic novels, not only in Dark Shadows, but also that series of TV movies he did, Dracula, Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, Picture of Dorian Gray, Turn of the Screw, all of those. So that's kind of fun. And we are making a guest appearance, a return appearance on the Nightmare Junkhead podcast for their March Madness tournament. Four movies from 1981. On tap for me to watch in the next week because we are recording that next weekend as you and I are recording this. Although by the time people listen to this, it will be in the past. But then it'll be airing in the future because it's March Madness. uh, Wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. (laughs) Let's get out of here. This is another marathon episode. I think we've gone through everything we need to, although in a slightly different order. Our song that we're going out on is called Strange New World by a entity of some some kind called Intense <laughs> from a 2007 album called As Our Army Grows that's available on Apple Music. It's been fun. Let's do it again <laughs> next month. <laughs> You're kind of throwing it back to me. Yes, it's a marathon episode. Had a lot of fun with this one. Stay safe, take care, and see you next time. Bye. We're of
so 